Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here as always to talk about stuff this week on the show. We are going to talk about a lot of different things. Yes, we are. Uh, let's see. We are going to talk about the latest episode of Twin Peaks at the obviously, end of the show, yes. obviously, which was one of the best, right? Yeah, a real banger. Like, real banger. holy crap. Yep. We're going to talk about a couple of different games. Uh, have you played Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice No, yet? I have not yet. I will talk about that. We together will talk a little bit about Nier Automata. Yes. Because I finally played it. We have to, we have to talk about that game. Yeah. Belated review, but we'll get into that. We'll do like five minutes on Sonic Mania, because neither of us are done with it. We're recording this the Tuesday it came out, so we'll give it its full due next week. And we'll talk about some other stuff before we get started with housekeeping and everything else. Yep. Um, I just want to say a little something about what happened this weekend in Charlottesville. Okay. Because, yeah. you know, look, the, the point of this show is to talk about fun and frivolous things. And just give you guys something to listen to and allow us to talk through some of the cool art and media out there in the world that we are interested in. And I think that is valuable in giving people an escape and giving us an escape. Yeah. But it does, on some level, get harder. I don't know for you, Sean. For me, it gets a little harder to do every week when the world is so manifestly shitty. Right. Um, yeah. So all I want to say is, horrible what happened in Charlottesville this weekend. It is so sad. It is so destabilizing. Uh as a person with any kind of decency to see what happened there this weekend, it is so destabilizing to see uh, a young woman named Heather Heyer murdered by Nazis in the year 2017 in the United States and have the president of the United States um, not speak up for her, which means that I think every decent American, it is their duty to speak up for her. Um, so in some level, I guess, we dedicate our silly show yeah. to her, to everyone who was hurt or injured in Charlottesville this weekend, uh, to all the... Uh, protesters on the, the right side of history in Charlottesville on the ground, all the organizers at UVA and all the people in the state of Virginia. Um, and I will just close my little words here with uh, the last thing Heather Heyer wrote on Facebook, which was, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Yeah. And I think she was right. And uh, I hope we, in the, in the future of America, honor her better than uh, our administration has done this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. No, if, if you are someone who is operating under a personal philosophy that is dedicated to hate and violence you have made a serious mistake in your life and you need to sort of recognize that about yourself for sure yes um so let's go ahead and talk about our own silly stuff okay yes because i think like some of the ways that we deal with these things is by the the, the media in our lives and the art that we consume because i know for sure like some of the like the more serious things we we talk about like twin peaks certainly it is impossible to watch some of the stuff and not use it to help you sort of like build your your opinions and and sort of construct and, and deconstruct these events that are going on in our lives. Yes, absolutely. So a couple little pieces of housekeeping first off. Sure. Our Patreon is full up and running at this point yeah. because today, Wednesday, August 16th, if you are listening to this, if you sign up for our $5 Patreon level or one of the ones above that, you can get the first bonus episode of the Weekly Stuff podcast. It's 45 to 50 minutes long, and we talk about a Doctor Who story, classic Doctor Who story, the yep. Aztecs with uh, William Hartnell, first Doctor story. And it's the, we're going to do one a month, and if you sign up for the Patreon, you get to listen to it a week early. So next Wednesday, when Podcast 204 goes out, everyone in the public will be able to listen to it. But if you want to listen to it now, listen to us talk some classic Doctor Who, then you can go ahead and sign up for our Patreon, and you will be able to listen to it on that page. We also, right now, episodes one through five of our Halo series are on the Patreon for yes. Warthog-level subscribers. And at parts six through ten are coming this Friday, the 18th. Think of how much content that is you'll get just this week. 
if you yes. sign up at the $10 level or above. And I have edited through part 9, I'm working on part 10, and they're really fun. We get really punchy near the end of that game. Yes, we do. So, because we had played a lot of Halo. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun, and I think it's really interesting. I'm very proud of all this stuff. Uh, and part, uh, part three of the Halo series went up on YouTube this Monday for the public. Part four is coming out Friday, so if you're going on the sort of free schedule, that's when you'll be able to see those, like we yeah. said. It'll be twice a week, Monday and Friday, with the podcast on Wednesday. And, uh, yeah, lots of cool stuff coming down the pike. Yeah, if you want to learn how little Jonathan knows about camel biology, you can check out Part 3, Truth and Reconciliation. <laughs> All right, yes, we, I do make a comment about camels. Yes, so, I mean, you, know. you, you, were, you were lured in by a common myth. Yes. Perpetuated by the evils of our society. Yes. All right, so that's our little housekeeping. Let's go on and talk about some stuff. Sean, what's new in your world? I've got a couple of, of little things I want to talk about um, because I, we sort of briefly mentioned this on, on last week's podcast but kind of forgot to sort of talk about it more and more formally is I have gotten two, count them, two Godzilla Blu-rays in. So this is a little section of Godzilla stuff for people who care because everyone knows that I care a hell of a lot. So, so number one is um, the Shin Godzilla, which is the, the movie that came out last year, the, the most recent uh, new Godzilla movie that we did an episode on in October 2016. Um, that finally got its Blu-ray re- release uh, through Funimation, and so I have that. It's, it's obviously it's a very sort of it's a basic package it's the, like don't get this expecting like a huge number of like big features they do have um, one sort of uh, special feature that is a sort of uh, round table discussion from a couple of people at Funimation and, and most interestingly to me they have one of the guys who is a sort of comic book artist that has done a lot of the art for the IDW Godzilla uh, comics over the past 10 years or so and, and hearing their discussion is pretty interesting but other than that like it is the movie but if you have not uh, heard about this movie I just have to like take the second to sort of pimp it out it is so awesome it is a fantastic Godzilla movie it's one of the best probably in my opinion the second best Godzilla movie right after the first one obviously being the best one um, but it is a brilliant brilliant movie if you have any interest in sort of like modern Japanese society and politics and like bureaucracy and, and those kinds of issues this is a must see movie it, it won a huge number of awards in Japan last year um, can I see your Blu-ray yes, for a second? Can, you can go ahead and take a look at the Blu-ray. Nice. But yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant movie. And then after you watch it, you can go back and listen to our podcast about it. Um, and it is a, I will say this, it's a handsome package. I love the yes. art. They give you a Blu-ray, a DVD, and a digital copy so you can watch it to your heart's content. Yes. Wherever the format. hell you are. Yes. Unfortunately, format. they don't give you a VHS, which I was disappointed about because to me, that is the format that Godzilla lives on in my heart. Now, um, it does say there's a dub. Have you listened to the dub? There is a dub, yeah. Like, the dub is, is, I think it's followable. Like, the thing is that, like, this is not... One thing to know is that this is not Godzilla versus Megalon or something. It is not a Godzilla movie that, like, is goofy and you want to watch, like, with the dub just to, like, be goofy. Because, to, to, like, to me, a dub movie is, like, you're either watching, like, a silly movie and so it's like, whatever, I'll just watch the dub. Who cares? Or if, like, a kid is watching it, obviously you're going to want it dubbed into whatever their native language is. And this is not a kid's movie. Do not show this movie to a kid. They will, one, not understand it, and two, they will have horrific nightmares because this thing is, it's disturbing on, like, a more, like, it's not just, like, like gory and freaky and, like, jump scares. It's not a horror movie in that way, but it is just unsettling in a lot of ways. Um, I One of the nice things about having the Blu-ray was when I rewatched the movie, I was able to just sort of freeze frame on the last image of the movie, so I'm not going to spoil what it is, but when we watched it in the theater, when it had the sort of limited release, obviously you couldn't, like, it's this, this shot... That is really haunting, but you're not able to, in the moment, fully make out what you're really seeing and, like, all of its detail because it cuts to black, didn't go to credits. And being able to freeze frame on that image is, like, 
holy fucking shit. Yeah. The last shot of this movie is amazing. And again, it will give you nightmares if you're like a six-year-old. So don't show this to a kid. Um, but the dub is kind of funny. Uh, one thing I will say that like, I have kind of mixed feelings on, I don't think it's necessarily like a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a, a choice they made in sort of bringing it over in this format. Is um, the movie has this stylistic thing of putting, like, when you're watching it, uh, or when we watched it in the theatrical release, you know, we had, like, five subtitles on top of each other because the movie has this, like, whole thing about Japanese bureaucracy that it will be like, okay, this is, like, we're going to give you subtitles, like, this is the room we're in, this is, like, these three people in this room, and then, like, this is, like, this person is talking in English, so that person's talking in English has Japanese subtitles for the Japanese audience, and then, but for the English audience, you're having English subtitles over that, and so, like, there's, like, 500 subtitles on the screen. What they have done with this release is that they have... There, there are still the subtitles in the sense of, like, you still have that information of who is talking and where they are, but they have taken out the Japanese subtitles and replaced them with English ones for those, so you don't get the stylistic element of having, like, the huge kanji characters on the screen, which I personally would have liked to have that, but it does, like, drastically improve, improve the readability for an English audience because, like, like, you can attest to this, like, that image could be extremely crowded yes. when you had to have all the, those subtitles on top of them. So, again, I, like, I would have liked to have those personally but obviously I also can understand Japanese so it's like and less of an issue to me it, we, we also I should say that is something that a lot of Japanese companies have just started doing with media that because there's so much more of Japanese content getting out to yeah. the west that that might not have been Funimation deci- decision that might have been Toho did that for sure. western releases yeah. and, and last year in theaters that came so close on the heels of the, the Japanese theatrical release they might not have done it yet but a full year later, I you know who knows whose decision that was. Funimation doesn't generally like to fuck with video like yeah. that, so who knows? But yeah. yeah, so that's like the one thing I noticed that is like slightly different. But again, it is not. Yeah, it doesn't ruin it, the movie. Yeah, no, not because again, like you are still getting that like effect of the like hilarity of just like oh, this is the like second hallway next to the bathroom in the government building in this district of Tokyo. That's a very specific bit of information you're giving me. Because it is like it's an intentional bit of humor yeah, and satire. Yeah. So but you're still getting it, it just doesn't have the same visual impact as the original version does. I haven't bought the Blu-ray yet. I will say, you know, you talk about this is a great movie. I, I've been starting to think about in two years' time, I'm going to have to make my best of the decade list for films. Okay, yeah. Which I know is a, it's a ways off, but it's close enough in the overall arc of the decade that I have to start getting ready for that. Right. And I think at this point, Shin Godzilla, I think, is one of the top ten of the of I, that might be up there. In, it in, is. It is, it is certainly for me, but yes. I actually don't see as many movies as you do. Yeah. So, but I think it is is one of the great, certainly, pieces of world cinema of this decade in film, and you should see it if you have not. And yeah. People, I still, when the Blu-ray came out, I had to see another round of reviews being like, why is there not more Godzilla? Why do people talk so much? And I just want to bang their heads against yeah. the wall. This is, I, yeah, this is, it's a brilliant movie. People should check it out again. Um, if you, because obviously we talked about it when we saw the limited theatrical release, which not everyone would have been able to do. So if, you, if this is your first time watching the movie, I highly recommend going back and listening to our, our podcast on it because I thought that was a very good one. I also had a written review on the site that I forgot I wrote. But go. I found it the other day. Yes. <laughs> that is definitely a movie that, like, after you see it, compels you to, like, yes. process it in some way, for sure. Now, the other thing I bought, which is way less relevant to anybody, but I was very gratified and interested by and very happy I could finally get this movie in a format that is not a weird Hong Kong Blu-ray, like, like rip-off thing, uh, is finally the... This is really funny because the, just the cover of the Blu-ray has three of the titles on here. It is Godzilla... Or it is Godzilla 1984, or it is the return of Godzilla. 
It is the Godzilla movie that was made in 1984 that was sort of the, one of the big reboots of um, the Godzilla movie franchise. That is basically, it's sort of like, kind of similar to Shin Godzilla, Godzilla in some ways. It is a, an update of the original kind of story, but for the mid-80s Japan as opposed to the, the mid-50s Japan. Um, it's, it's not necessarily the best Godzilla ever movie ever made, but I think it's a very good one. But one thing that was sort of important about it to me was that this movie was impossible to get for ever. And then last year, um, I think in October, it was around the time that Shin Godzilla came out, they finally, the, they finally put out a Blu-ray release of this. And it just took me a while to get around to being like, I should just buy this. Like, why, like, I own so many of these Blu-rays. I have this terrible, terrible bootleg DVD of this movie with, like, burned-in English subtitles that doesn't even have a main menu screen or anything, and, like, the aspect ratio is slightly off, and it's, like, bad. I should just get this um, release. So this is, if you have gotten any of the other sort of um, recent Blu-ray releases of Godzilla, it is of that same sort of uh, quality. It's not necessarily the most amazing thing. It doesn't have a billion special features on it, but it is, like, it is a very functional version of the movie that has, like, um, you know, decent video quality. It doesn't have a huge restoration, but it is much better than any quality you'd probably be able to find on the internet or on, on a bootleg DVD. And it does have... An English dub. Unfortunately, what it doesn't have, and I knew this when I bought it, but there was still a weird part of me that was thinking, like, maybe this is what they meant by English dub, and they were just wrong on the Amazon page. Is this movie, in its original American theatrical release, did have edited scenes where they put in the guy from the the English version of the original Godzilla movie, Godzilla King of the Monsters, Raymond Burr, playing his character from that movie of the reporter that's just telling an American audience the things you can very clearly see on the screen because apparently Americans couldn't watch movies in 1954. I don't know why they had to put him in there. No, they couldn't. It's yeah. Films of that era. Too. Okay, sure, yes. But so Roger Corman, who brought the movie uh, Godzilla 1984 over to for the American theatrical release in 1984, um, shot scenes with uh, Raymond Burr playing that character as kind of a joke. Unfortunately, those scenes are not on this Blu-ray because that version of the movie is owned by a different production studio and all this stuff. So it does have an international dub of the movie, and this is one that, like, a kid would have no problem watching this Godzilla movie. So, like, if you want to throw this on for some kid, if you just have the Blu-ray and show them the dub, it's a totally fine, normal, like, English dub of the movie. It just doesn't have those, like, other weird extra scenes edited in, which, ideally, you would have that version on the disc as well, but... As an extra, basically. Yes, as an extra. But I will take what I can get, because, again, now... Every Godzilla movie is very easily available on either DVD or Blu-ray, except for my second favorite Godzilla movie, or th I guess third second favorite, whatever the ranking works out now with Shin Godzilla. Uh, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla is still only available either on my VHS tape that I own or a DVD that you can buy on Amazon for about $600 from a used DVD store because they made one fucking printing of that DVD for the 50th anniversary special in 2004 and have not released that movie again since and it's driving me up the fucking wall that that, like, we have Godzilla 1984 finally on Blu-ray, but for whatever reason, this company cannot get the rights to Godzilla vs. Godzilla. One day, how it goes. One day, my Godzilla movie collection will be complete and Maybe, like, up to date. So you know how the Criterion has that one edition of the original Godzilla. Yes, the great Blu-ray. Yeah. Maybe that's the one other Godzilla movie they'll get. It's Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. They just save the rights and yeah. put it out there. There has to be someone that's working at Criterion that knows how good that movie is. Oh, absolutely. I believe that in my heart of hearts. They had a pop-out Godzilla in their Godzilla version, yeah. Sean. They they're they're with it. They are woke to Godzilla. Exactly. So yeah, right. that's my Godzilla home video release news. If you're someone who's interested in picking up Godzilla movies and you've been one or, or just curious about watching that specific one, because if you ever were like, I kind of want to see that, it was basically impossible to see. 
Now you can see it if you want to. Nice. Speaking of home video stuff, I bought a new TV finally. Congratulations. I have owned the same 40-inch 1080p TV since 2011. Yeah. So I have... Like I and I keep putting it off because the process of buying a TV these days is fucking utter torture, which you chronicled like last year on the podcast yeah. when you helped your family buy a new TV. Yep. Because there's the 4K bullshit and there's the high frame rate bullshit and all the things you don't want on a fucking yeah. TV. When I was buying a TV, there were still a couple of curved TVs around. Yeah. Looked at them with a side eye, like, "What are you fuckers doing here? Well, I thought we got rid of you two years ago." I all I've been wanting is a new 1080p TV. That, you know, has maybe some slightly nicer, newer features, but... A decent number of HDMI ports. A decent number of HDMI ports, uh, and was slightly bigger than the TV I had. I don't have space for, like, a 60-inch screen or anything. Right. But now that... I mean, God, TVs basically don't have bezels anymore. Yeah. Um, so I, nice. could just, I could just fill the bezel space with screen. So I got a 43-inch TV. I found this was great. I actually got an email from Best Buy. I'm, like, on their ad list, I guess. And I don't normally look at those, but it said, like, sale on, like... 43-inch TVs or something. I'm like, huh. And so I looked, and I found, I wound up in the store finding a Toshiba 43-inch TV, 1080p for $250. Nice. It. One of the best purchases I've ever made. I was so happy. It fits in my space perfectly. We did have to put some little, like, wooden planks under the feet just so it would be a little higher because that's the other thing is a lot of TVs now come on feet, not stands. Yeah. And, I mean, and because of also the bezel thing, they're lower, and I just needed a little higher to fit where the old TV was and everything and kind of my speaker setup. But it's great. Like, I, I did not realize that you know in six years, my old TV had worn out a little bit. It didn't look as good as it once did. Also, like, TVs just kind of look better now, even if they're still 1080p. And so, and also, like, Toshiba, they don't fuck around. This didn't have any high frame rate bullshit. This didn't have any. It has some weird different picture modes, but none of them are, like, egregious, and I can just pick the one I want. And I just, basically, I set everything to zero. And I was like, no, don't mess with the color. Don't mess with the zero. And uh, put the brightness up and all that. And it looks nice. And it's been a lot of fun. It didn't even have any... It doesn't have any smart TV stuff. It, it, but it does interact with my HDMI devices better. Like my Apple TV, it will turn on everything. TV receiver, Apple TV, and it'll turn it all off. Because nice. this TV can interact with that. And I think I can set the PS4 to do that, but I haven't yet. Um, so it's nice that it does all that. But I've been enjoying it. It's, it's, an, it's bigger enough that I see the difference and it's like, oh, this is cool. That is the absolute best thing. Like that like two week or so period of uh-huh. like getting the new TV and you're like, every time you sit down in front of you, you're like, this thing is gargantuan. Yep. Even if it was like a 0.5 inch increase in the screen size, you'd still just be like, this thing is so huge. Yep. Then, but then you have like the other thing of, you know, sometimes because when my parents go on vacations, I get to use like the super nice TV that they have. And then when they come back from their like cruise, I had to go to the basement and use my older TV, which is a totally fine TV. But I was like, this is tiny. This is yeah. like playing a video game on a postage stamp. What the fuck? What has happened to my life? Yeah, no, it's it's very funny. But uh, I've enjoyed that, the, you know, just seeing things in slightly nicer picture quality, I think. Because my older TV also is was kind of dim by the end of its life. So this is nice and bright and everything. And, uh, you know, I've played a couple different games on it. Actually, the first game I tested on it was Mario Kart 8 Deluxe for the Switch because you sure. get high frame rate, uh, 60 FPS, and it's a super colorful game. Right, yeah, the color pops. Yeah, so it was a really nice way to test it. That looked amazing. But then I also put on my PS4, and I had actually the night before stayed up till 3 in the morning finishing Hellblade, Senua's Sacrifice, which I assume would look great on my TV, but I'd finished it, and that game scarred me deeply 
So I didn't quite, quite want to start another playthrough of it. Sure. So I was like, well, what do I have in my PS4 that I can test out? And I turned on Hitman. Yeah. And I have played so much Hitman in the it's last two days. so good. On my new TV. One, that game looks great. Yes, it More does, than yeah. I kind of remembered. And, and very, like, I've been, I, st- I went into Sapienza because that's the nicest looking level. Uh-huh. And I've done, like, five different escalation contracts in Sapienza because it just looks so nice on my TV and it's so much fun. I've now hit level 20 mastery in Sapienza basically through escalation contracts. Sure, yeah. And, uh. You know what? I had not played a lot of the Escalation contracts before. That's my new favorite thing about Hitman. They're really good. The main levels are fine, and I like them. But for replayability, like, those challenges where they give you, like, five increasingly difficult challenges, and they let you really play with different spaces in the level, particularly Sapienza, where a big portion of that map is not used for the main assassination mission... I really like the escalation contracts because they take you all over. My favorite one was one where you have to dress up as a priest to kill someone. So yes, I would start yeah, every time in the church morgue and go out and it would. I was describing this to Thomas and it, I sounded like a crazy person, but it's totally true. Is where I would. I knew the priest was going to come out this one door, so I would go into the confessional booth, get a combat knife, which was my smuggled in item, and then go away from him by this door, stab him in the gut, take his priest you know uniform, and then go stab the other guy and escape. And it's been fun. I've also realized that, one, I'm really bad at Hitman, which is actually a fun way to play it sometimes. Sure, yeah. Where you just let things go to shit and get out, you know, an AK or something. I also realize it is kind of fun to go full Rambo on these levels if you want. Or I think a better comparison is John Wick because yeah. you totally wind up. He has, like, the John Wick reload thing uh-huh. where he just, like, you know, flips the clip out and then puts a new one in. And I would constantly be doing the thing where I'd have my pistol and do the shot to the gut, shot to the head, which is what John Wick is always yeah. doing. And um, anyway, this is all to say, I did go back and do the main assassination mission in Sapienza again, uh-huh. thinking I was going to do some more challenges. One of my plans fell apart. By the end, I had killed 97 people. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. It's Which, a, uh, fun, it's it's a, a fun, fun way to play it. It's a fun, disturbing, weird thing. Did you find any like of the spots where they like piled the body bags and it was just like 50 people, just like 50 body bags just piled up and you turn that corner and see that you're like... I did, not, I did not I was not able to find that But I will tell you this I did get to a point When I was escaping Where there were no people With guns left uh-huh. I had killed every guard On the map And it was just The terrified people And at that point I had the um, On that map You can get that uh, What's it called The the little knife like Circumcision knife Yeah The like amputation knife Yeah And I had that And I was just stabbing Civilians on my way To the boat And uh, they don't do it In the visuals But I know I was Basically disemboweling them Yeah So Hitman yeah. And I've done a, I did a stealthy run too. I tried to do. I did not wind up succeeding because it's very hard. I was trying to do suit only sniper, but it was fun to yeah, try at least. Yeah, I think I've done that one on that map. But um, fun. Hitman's been a lot of fun to play. I wasn't even really going to talk about it. It's just I wound up doing it to test out my new TV, and then it became. Well, I finished Hellblade. Sonic Mania doesn't come out until Tuesday. I'm gonna play some fucking Hitman. It's such a good game. It's yeah. and you can go back to it whenever you want because there's no like learning curve on it again you know you just it's like riding a bike yeah and especially like those the one thing that's really nice about those escalation contracts is that it gives you this like very focused yeah task to focus on as opposed to going in and doing the main missions you kind of have to decide like oh well i guess i'll try to go for this challenge or whatever and it's a lot more freeform structure there's something very nice like i like those i love those missions to death but it's also nice to be able to go and like i'm going to do this like really focused thing that it's going to take me five to ten minutes to do one of these objectives and just like yeah. kind of bop those things out it's, it's a great it's one of the great things about that game is how versatile it is. It's it's so fun. If you haven't played Hitman yet, man, I mean, it's on sale all the time yeah, now. Yeah, it is. As, it's just such an amazing game. It's like, as, pick it up. It's such a huge package of content now. Oh, God. It's one of the most feature-rich games you'll ever play. And, it was, and it's interesting because it was done episodically. But now, if you picked it up, yeah. it's like a 
you could pour 200 hours into that. I mean, they literally, like, last weekend, I haven't done any of these missions yet, but I, like, I've been kind of, like, eyeing it, being like, oh, when I have some time, I'm going to do this. Um, they put into the Hokkaido map um, a challenge pack with, like, four or five challenges in it that if you complete all the challenges, you unlock a, a katana called Masamune that you can bring into any mission with you. And, that, like, again, it's just, like, they just throw in these free updates. It's like, oh, it's not necessarily, like, a huge new mission or something, but it just gives you, like, another thing to do of, like, go in and do all these uh, challenges challenges relating around getting the motorcycle outfit in the Hokkaido map and killing people in creative ways. And then you get a nice little sword to unlock that you can then bring in and stab, you know, like a church man to, in, to death and steal his yes. priest outfit. So, yeah, it has been a real blast playing some of that. Uh, the other thing I, I've watched on my TV that I wanted to talk about really quick is the new DuckTales on Disney XD Woo-hoo. that premiered this weekend. Yes, I haven't and, watched it yet. Yeah, we don't normally talk about children's programming, but this is fucking DuckTales. I mean, we talk about Doctor Who. That's true. But uh, did you watch DuckTales as a kid? Yes. Yeah. DuckTales is so good. It is very I good. I loved it, and I've been so excited for this new version. If you haven't followed the marketing, it just has looked like so much fun. It's got that great voice cast with David Tennant as Scrooge, and uh, basically a bunch of SNL comedians yeah. as everyone else. And uh, they did put out the premiere this weekend, and it's, it's free on YouTube. It's free on iTunes. Uh, that's how I watched it, because I, I don't have Disney XD. But it's so good. Like, it's, a, it's, yeah. a 45, it's an hour-long premiere, which... Take out the commercials is like 45 minutes. It is a boatload of fun. They got the heart of DuckTales so right, which is like, if you told me modern DuckTales, I would be worried it would just be like, I don't know, Huey, Dewey, and Louie making sex jokes. Like something awful like sure. that. Or they would add some kind of minion-esque character from Despicable Me. But it's not that at all. It is, it so quickly gets to the heart of Scrooge McDuck is a crazy adventurer who loves money. And Huey, Dewey, and Louie are little troublemakers. And they're going to go help him have some adventures. And that's what they do. But it also has a fresh eye. Like the animation style is very different. But I love it. It's really fluid. It looks like a comic book. It's got these wonderful textures in the background. And it's simple in the way that allows them to, I think, have a lot of character movement. Which is interesting when you're telling what are essentially these like Indiana Jones riff kind of stories um, so that's great the characterizations are really fun like uh, Donald Duck is actually a bigger part of this who is named a lot in the original DuckTales but is not a character on that show yeah. we just know that Huey Dewey and Louie's Uncle Donald left them with Scrooge McDuck to go join the Navy or something um, I mean, that's why he has the sailor suit. Yeah, he's he's fighting Nazis. Or I something. mean, it's not that he went to join the Navy; it's that the Navy finally found him and court-martialed him because he's never there. It's like he keeps on sort of, you know, he's there, he's he's leaving yeah. his mission, his post. So Donald is a more active presence here, and the 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 one downside. I mean, it's wonderful. It's it's still Tony Anselmo doing Donald, who is one of two people who has ever voiced Donald Duck. I did not realize like that is a dynasty at Disney, and they don't have multiple Donalds. They have one fucking Donald at a time, and there's been like two of them. But anyway, Tony Anselmo has been doing this for a long time. His voice is a little bit, even for Donald, a little too garbled to quite understand. But sure. you get used to it because Donald does have a lot more dialogue than he usually has. But it's a lot of fun. Um, and then you have, so Huey, Dewey, and Louie are left. Uh, Scrooge basically needs to babysit them. Scrooge is cantankerous and doesn't want to babysit them. Huey, Dewey, and Louie wind up causing some trouble in Scrooge's garage where he has all these like artifacts. And then they wind up going on an adventure and learn the power of love or something. Sure. But it's such a fun story. One of the best things you'll notice right off the bat is that Huey, Dewey, and Louie in the original show were basically one character. Like They had yeah. one voice. They were kind of interchangeable. Here, I mean, they're played by three great actors. You have Ben Schwartz, um, uh, the, the guy from Community. I'm forgetting his name at the moment. And then... Um, uh, Bobby Moynihan from SNL and I'm so sad I'm forgetting um, Abed from Community because that's horrible of me I, Danny Pudi there we go okay. it's on the tip of my tongue and they all have like a different personality so Danny P- Pudi uh, Pudi plays Huey I think 
and the one with the red hat, and he's like basically the know-it-all. And then you have Ben Schwartz as Dewey, who is like this, you know, super adventurous kind of guy who never listens to reason. And then you have Louis is the Bobby Moynihan character who's sort of more of the normal one. But I love that they have different characterizations. They play off each other and Donald and Scrooge in different ways. Uh, and then you have... Um, I think it's uh, Kate McCucci is playing Webby, the, the little girl duck, yeah. who in the original show was kind of like the annoying baby of the group, and they didn't really give a lot of characterization to. She's really fun here. I love Kate McCucci, and she's great as that. Um, I forget who's playing Launchpad, but Launchpad McQuack, who you will remember was not just on DuckTales, but no. also on Darkwing Duck, yes. who apparently is going to be in an episode later this season, Darkwing Duck. Oh, awesome. Which is an awesome idea. Um, I love that crossover. I don't think they ever did a crossover with like DuckTales and Darkwing Duck in I the don't day. think so. So that's a fun idea. But anyway, Launchpad is so fucking funny in this. He's very much like a fringe character who comes in to make a joke and then leaves, you know, kind of every few minutes, but he is absolutely hilarious. And then at the heart of it, you have David motherfucking Tennant as Scrooge McDuck. And, good God, he has so much fun being so Scottish. Mm-hmm. He is so Scottish in this episode, or in this, in this performance. Like, as Scottish as he is in Broadchurch, just less angry. Sure. <laughs> like, less I mean, sad I about the world. I think he has to be, by, like, law, to be on a children's show. Yes. Less, like, yeah, like, angry at the world and at himself yeah. than in Broadchurch. And he's so much fun. And, you know, David Tennant has this inherent, like, ability that his Scrooge is never going to be quite as rough around the edges as Alan Young's was, who, you know... Alan Young's Scrooge was amazing and wonderful and awesome. This is slightly different, and that's good. It's its own thing. But, you know, if DuckTales gave us nothing else than an opportunity to just listen to Scro- uh, Donald or, uh, David Tennant play Scrooge McDuck every week, I would be all in on that. And it's so worth it. He is so wonderful in this. And not, like, slumming it in a kid's show. Right. He is having a lot of fun. And I just, I love how omnipresent David Tennant is these days. Yeah. He's in everything. I just love the guy. I saw it. He did an interview with Stephen Colbert where he read Trump tweets as Scrooge McDuck, yeah. which was fucking hilarious. Mm-hmm. It's anyway. I just I can't recommend the show highly enough. It is a ton of fun. I watched this on the same Sunday. I watched this and then Game of Thrones and then Twin Peaks. Well, that's a, that's a great three parter. <laughs> great three parter. Game of Thrones, which had a good episode, was probably the least interesting episode of TV I watched that day. Mm. Um, DuckTales is really, really good. And I'm kind of sad. They did this as like a pre-premiere. The show doesn't start airing normal episodes until the end of September. Ah. But I am excited to see more. And I will have to follow this kid's show. Apparently Disney XD is doing a lot of fun, interesting shows. I hear about people loving shows on that network a lot. They do Star Wars Rebels, so I watched that one. So anyway, I'm glad they're doing some new DuckTales. And this show does not feel like it's cheap cash or anything. It feels like... You know, there's no reason not to tell new DuckTales stories. It's kind of, you can do that as much as you want. It's yeah. a story about ducks having adventures. And this is a different take on it, but very true to the spirit of the original. And the theme song is as catchy as ever, which is to say, it is still in my head after two days. I mean, you, you like, just talking about DuckTales, the theme is stuck in my head. Like, when you said the word DuckTales, or words DuckTales, it's just intercapped, isn't it? It's just one word, DuckTales. Yeah, it's one tales. So, yeah, like... The, the theme song immediately stuck in my head. I've just been humming it in my head while you've been talking the whole time. The, the title of the premiere is just Woohoo, which I think go. is perfect. So, yes. I saw we're going to get the Beagle Boys in episode four. So Fantastic. There you go. Love the Beagle Boys. Anyway, DuckTales was like my show as a kid. So, this is. I was more of a Duckwing or Darkwing Duck boy, so I think yeah. that I will have to at least check in for that episode. That's going to. I can't wait. I wonder who they're going to. Because they kind of have some notable comedian or actor in every part. Because Darkwing Duck, he might, I think he was just Jim Cummings, so they could probably get so, him yeah. back again. But I wonder if they're going to have a fun like actor for Darkwing. Anyway, I'm excited to see what that Michael is. Michael Fassbender. 
and he can be full Irish. Yes, for it, right? Yes. Okay, that's gonna be a. That's like the Christopher Nolan like, Darkwing Duck. Just in your mind, just hear Michael Fassbender say, "Let's get dangerous." Oh God! Yeah, that's terrifying. Right? It's real good, huh? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, you want to talk about some video games, Sean? Sure, let's talk about some video games. All right, so uh, we will go uh, kind of least we have to say to most we have to say. Okay, is... sure. I think I think I know which one's going last. Then. Okay, so we are going to talk a little bit about Sonic Mania, just pre-review because yeah. we have not finished it, but we'll just give some first impressions. Full review next week. That'll probably be our main topic. I'm going to talk about Hellblade, which you need to fucking play. I'll get around to it. You you have to. I'll I'll get around to it at some point. I'll okay, know. it's it's oh my god. And then we will talk about together. Near Automata. Yes. We're not going to do like three hours on it. It, we'll, it deserves we'll more, but we'll, we'll do I what know, we can. But we have limited time today. So anyway, Sonic Mania came out today. You're playing it on PS4, I assume? Uh, yes. I'm playing it on Nintendo Switch. It's mostly the same. Nintendo Switch has a weird home button glitch that you might have seen. Yeah, I saw that on it, Kotaku or something. In no, in no way affects gameplay. It just, if you want to go to the home menu, it's weirdly delayed, and I assume they'll fix it, but it's a weird Yeah, glitch. it's just like, like you usually don't see a glitch no. like that. That's I, something that it like fucks up like the OS side of the console. Yeah, like I have like 14 games on Switch, and none of them, you know, third party, first party, whatever, have that issue, so I assume it can be fixed. I mean, I assume it's probably just like a Nintendo console can't handle the power of Sonic, Sonic. the Hedgehog. Like that, it just can't yeah. do the blast processing. It doesn't have the tude for it. Yeah. So Sean, we have been very excited for this game. Yeah, for what a long th- time now. I've played four zones, you've played five or six. Yeah. What do you think of Sonic Mania? I think it's amazing. Like it's, it's so good. If you have any tiny shred of love in your heart for the original four, three, four, however you count Sonic and Knuckles, but the Sonic, Sonic 2, Sonic 3 and Knuckles, and the Sonic CD, let's definitely put that in there as well because it's using a lot of elements from that. If you have any love in your heart at all for any of those games or all of them, like you you have to play Sonic Mania because it is such an amazing, amazing, like, both throwback and evolution of those games because it, it, I mean, just like immediately it starts off the bat where it opens with the opening from Sonic the Hedgehog 3, which is Sonic 3 is my Sonic game. Like, that's the one we owned on the Sega Genesis, whereas, like, we rented 1 and 2, and so I played Sonic the Hedgehog 3 to death. I have seen the opening of Sonic the Hedgehog 3 more times than I would, like, think about. Um, so, like, it just opens with that, like, the same, the Angel Island Zone music, everything, and he, he, he runs on top of the water. He doesn't turn into Super Sonic because he doesn't have the Chaos Emeralds, but he runs on top of the water onto Angel Island, but instead of getting attacked by Knuckles from underground and all the Chaos Emeralds spreading all over the place, he runs into Dr. Robotnik or Dr. Eggman with a bunch of other egg robot people, and he has some sort of time emerald that then transports you back in time. Obviously, the story is very vague, as is appropriate for a 16-bit style Sonic the Hedgehog game. But he teleports you back in time to the Green Hill Zone Act 1. And at first it just looks like Green Hill Zone. It's the Green Hill Zone music. Like you go get the three rings and jump on the little platform that has the like the, the thing on it, the TV on it. And then there's like a bug going up and down and everything. It's like exactly the Green Hill Zone you know. And then like you go a little bit further and then slowly it starts sort of like changing and evolving and then you find like a fucking fire shield from Sonic the Hedgehog 3 in the Green Hill Zone area and then you find like areas that are like the end of Act 2 where it has like the raising and lowering platforms with the spike pits and stuff and eventually you beat Act 1 of Green Hill Zone and you go to Act 2 of Green Hill Zone and it's all different like the music gets remixed and it's like throwing in all these different crazy elements from all the different Sonic the Hedgehog games including new things that they put in like the so if you jump and hold down the jump button, you will, like, fall to the ground faster and do an immediate spin dash, which is a new technique they put in there. And so there's all these little elements like that that, like, have evolved. And then you go to Chemical Hill Plant or Chemical Plant Zone after that. And then – and that's amazing. And they do similar things that has 
Act 2 of Chemical Plant Zone is unbelievable. Yes, and we will not talk about that boss fight no. if people have not played that game yet, but holy fucking shit, the boss fights of this game are amazing, and yes. the boss fight at the end of Chemical Plant Zone Act 2 is fucking unbelievable what they do. Oh, it's so great. And then you get to Studioopolis Zone, which is the first new zone, and, and that's where they just go utterly bonkers. It's basically this like whole new insane version of what like a casino level would be in, in the old Sonic the Hedgehog game. Oh, Studioopolis is so good. And it's just like, I so, like every little tiny shred of this game I am absolutely in love with. Like obviously, like if people have been listening to this podcast for a while, you know I love Sonic the Hedgehog. I love those old games in particular. And this just, everything about it from the art, the music, the level design, the like new gameplay mechanics, everything is so lovingly crafted. The the movement of Sonic is absolutely perfect. There's not like any of that Sonic the Hedgehog 4 bullshit they tried like eight years ago or something now where they like utterly fucked with the movement system. It is everything is perfect and then they like ratchet it up to like 11 every single time and and it's it's so just an amazing it's, game. Sonic Mania is like the best DJ in the world yeah. taking your favorite tracks and remixing them to perfection like and adding so much that you never would have seen before yeah. and then just somehow creating new stuff in the middle of that session as well. Yeah. It is out of this world. I agree with you. I in love with all of it. It's it's funny because it's a challenging game at times. There were some sure, hard yeah. parts, pretty in the fourth zone, that I had some trouble with. And because of it's got like an old-fashioned kind of saving system. So I had to do the fourth zone, the aerial one. Um, uh, flying Battery flying Zone battery from zone, Sonic 3. Yeah. Which is really good. I had to do it a couple of times. Yeah, like the that's thing. the... I've only, I've only run out of lives once and it was on uh, Flying Battery Zone. Yeah, and I had to do it a couple of times. I didn't get frustrated or anything. It was just yeah. like, oh, this is so much fun. I had yeah. so much fun with it throughout. The music in this fucking game is out of this world good. I cannot wait for a soundtrack. I know they're doing a vinyl yeah. one. I hope they do a, um, a one normal people can buy too. <laughs> no offense, vinyl's awesome. It's just I. Wait, you, you know, don't have a way to rip a vinyl a disc onto your PC? Not easily. Yeah. Anyway, but um, the music is so good. The visuals are so fucking beautiful, and yeah. I would love if they would get this team to just remaster the original four Sonics for modern consoles and get those yeah. out too, because I want them in that quality, like basically the iOS ports, but. With a fucking controller, like sure, yeah, because they 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 this game looks so good. I'm playing it on Switch, and this is like the the rare Switch game where it looks great on the handheld, and I love playing it. I've played one of the zones through that way, and it was great, controlled wonderfully. But I kind of feel like I need to play it on the TV because it just at least the first time through because it looks so vibrant and colorful and beautiful, and then the sound is so good. But I, I've loved it. You know, we are we're definitely in an age where like retro throwbacks are a thing, and we get yeah. a lot of these. And you know, you can trace that back as far as like. You know, ten years ago now, Nintendo doing New Super Mario Bros. or something, right. um, and some of them are great. Like I love New Super Mario Bros. Um, at least the first one, and that eventually got stale. And there's ones that are original but have throwback elements, like Shovel Knight or something. I think the highest praise I can give Sonic Mania is that this doesn't feel like someone recreating Sonic. This feels like pure original from the tap Genesis uh-huh. Sonic. It's the real deal. And it's just a really, really good, kind of insane version of it. Yeah, it is It is definitely, like, Sonic Mania is absolutely the perfect title for it because it has that, like, you can feel the passion and love for Sonic the Hedgehog that, like, that, that franchise inspires in people, like, it inspired in myself when I was a kid. And it's just, like, you feel that energy so purely in that, and, like, particularly that love for that era, like, it has... 
Um, the people I've probably seen, if you've seen any of the trailers, are, um, the opening animation that they have done for the game, which takes a lot of that kind of like Sonic CD style, but then also mixes in like some of that like crazy Japanese or like European Sega Genesis box art that just like like weird abstract shapes and shit, and like puts that in there, and like just every t- like tip to toe, every single piece of this game is filled with love for those old games, but also, like, it's not just love for them, it's this, like, really powerful, incisive knowledge of what those games were, and why they work, and why people love them, and it has that sort of, like, self-reflection, and it improves on so many of those elements, and puts so many insane, fascinating new mechanics in there, and, like, interesting spins on old levels. I love the way that it will, like, in the middle of that, like, those Green Hill Zone, or Chemical Plant Zone, or, like, Flying Battery Zone levels, they will just, like, it feels like they're, like, quoting level design, that, like, you will, like, you're, like, going, like, in this crazy alternate pathway of, like, all new stuff you've never seen before in those older games, and then all of a sudden you run into an area where, like, I know this exact series of jumps, like, I know this exactly, and you do it, and then you end up in a totally new area, and it's this really fascinating uh, feeling if you if you play those old games and know them really well. There are parts of this game that are just, like, an out-of-body experience when you are flying around and crazy things are happening and the sights you're seeing and realizing like in Studiopolis there's this part where you're literally blown up with some popcorn and then thrown out the top yes yeah and just like the series of things that will happen to you and the crazy visuals you will see it takes your breath away yeah it is it's a hell of a game I'm having so much fun with it $20 this thing's a fucking steal yeah because you have Sonic and Tails Sonic Tails and the Knuckles so it has like the full playable cast from the Sonic 3 and Knuckles stuff and and then obviously you have all the Chaos Emeralds you can get. Have you have you gone to any of the Chaos Emerald special stages yet? Yes, they're I've like only. The, they're the like because they're two special stages. They have the Sonic Three ones with like the blue spheres, yeah. and then there's like the almost like Sonic R style, like you're racing and try to catch yes. up to UFO. I've only gotten one Chaos, Chaos Emerald, but yeah. I've done two of those UFO okay. ones, and I did do one of the Sonic Three get the blue spheres yeah. thing. So I will. I will. Right now, I'm just focusing on doing one playthrough and like seeing the game. Yeah, that's that's the way to go for the first time. But yeah, there's, but, but there's a huge amount of replayability. Is, oh, yeah. is what I'm trying to say. Because yeah. I'm playing it with Sonic and Tails. Yes, that's the right way to play it the first time through. Right, and then I'm, I definitely want to do a Knuckles playthrough. I want to. I want to see what Tails on his own is like a little bit. Yeah, and uh, I do want to get all the Chaos Emeralds at some point because it's going to be fun. Yes, and I'm sure there will be walkthroughs for it within a few hours of now. Yeah. So anyway, it's... there are also there are a huge number of weird like little unlockable things because it took me a while to figure out what doing the Sonic Three stages the Blue Sphere ones unlocked for you because at the end of those you get a coin instead of a Chaos Emerald with the, which is what you would have done in Sonic Three and but those coins as you unlock them. Um, when you, because the reason why I didn't know is because you only unlock them once you dump back to the main menu. So it was after I lost all my lives on Flying Battery, I dumped back to the main menu, and then all the special stages I had done and gotten all these coins, it unlocks all these different things where you can play the game with the, like, uh, peel-out mechanic that is in Sonic CD, or you can play it with the, uh... The sort of like double sh- the shield thing you can do in Sonic Three, or if you jump and press jump again in the air, you have this like brief moment of invulnerability. So there's a and that's like only like the handful of unlockables I got for a handful of coins that I've gotten so far. So there's definitely feels like there's a lot of stuff in this package that that I don't even know about yet, and that's one of the most exciting things about it. How cool is it to be this excited and enthusiastic about a Sonic game in 2017? Yeah. Yeah, it feels I, so good. It's, it's the best feeling in the world. It's like when we talked about Sonic Generations, and I think this is better. Yeah, me Just too. being like, Sonic is great. It's Sonic so is good. great, and then and it's also so unique. Because yeah. there are so many 2D platformers that ape the Mario kind of like design language. And that's great, obviously, because Mario is a great franchise. But Sonic has such a particular... Yes. 
formula and a particular like feel and the sense of momentum and movement and, and that kind of stuff that no other video game franchise has ever really been able to do. The few that have tried have generally failed. Even the other Sonic games that have tried, like Sonic the Hedgehog 4, have failed. Um, so it's just a, like a surreal experience to like revisit this concept of this kind of very specific 2D platformer that people don't really make anymore and see like these people that understand it so well, having being able to evolve those concepts from past what was capable on the Sega Genesis and like imagine like what if you could like take this like basic style and fundamental version of a platformer, but make it with all the abilities we have in 2017 in terms of video game development is an amazing thing to see. Amazing. And I cannot wait to talk more about it next week. Yes. We'll have a full thing next week, I'm sure. All right. Now, I'm going to talk about Hellblade, Senua's Sacrifice. Okay. This is a game from Team Ninja, British developers, who um, previously have developed... I have not played their other games, but you've played some of them. Like uh, um, they, Their first thing was uh, Heavenly Sword, which was that sort of like Ninja Gaiden-esque character action game on the PS3. And then they did um, Enslaved Odyssey to the West, which is a game I hear so much good stuff about. It was like a kind of a sleeper hit in like 2009 or 10. And I always mean, have, I've been meaning to go back and play that game since like 2012 when I first heard about it and have never gotten around to it. But um, their, their last game before Hellblade Sinew was Sacrifice was the Devil May Cry sort of reboot game that a lot of hardcore Devil May Cry fans kind of poo-pooed. But I think that game is fantastic. So okay. they, they are definitely, it is, it is Ninja Theory, by the way. You oh, said Ninja. Team Ninja. Team okay. Ninja is Ninja Gaiden. Okay. It is a very easy mistake to yeah. make. Okay. No, and I do nin- not blame you because they make very similar kinds of games as well. Yeah, Ninja Theory. Yeah. And I'm going to have trouble talking about this game because it is maybe the most unique gaming experience I have ever had. Um, so Hellblade Send You a Sacrifice. It's on the PS4. It's also on the PC. It's a $29.99 game. And one of the stated uh, intentions with the game by the developers is to try to fill a space between, like, you know, your $15, $20 indie games, like a t- Tacoma, like we talked about right, last yeah. week, and your big AAA games like Assassin's Creed that are $60. Like the same kind of production values, but maybe smaller, more intimate, more immediate, and for yeah. a cheaper price. And you don't have to like throw microtransactions in and a billion other yeah. things in there to try to justify the production right. cost. So Hellblade is $29.99, which is, I think, an absolute steal. It took me about probably 9 to 10 hours to finish. Um, and, you know, it is just the game. It's just the campaign. It does come with a bonus video, like, on the making of, which I have not gone in and watched yet, but that is a nice little bonus, almost like a DVD extra that they give you. Cool. But it's just the game. Um, the game does have some combat, but it doesn't have, like, you go in and buy weapons and have a skill tree and all that. It has, you know, some puzzle stuff, but it's just, it's all within the environment and whatnot. Um, one of the best ways I can describe kind of the gameplay of it is it's, it's Naughty Dog to some degree, it's Dark Souls to some degree. It's Ninja Gaiden to some degree with some of the challenge. Um, but it is also completely and utterly its own thing. And one of the best ways I can describe my reaction to it is I got it on Friday. And, well, I got it the previous day. P- PSN download speeds took like 24 right. hours. But anyway, downloaded. I played it Friday morning for about two and a half hours. And then I had to stop because I was close to having a heart attack. <laughs> and I'll tell you why in a minute. And then I went away and did something else. I started again about 7.30 at night. And I I just finished the game. And I went until like 3 in the morning. And I could not put it down. Not And the thing is, I would not necessarily recommend playing it that way. Because it is brutal and punishing. Not necessarily in difficulty, but in what it does to you as a person. But I also, I could not fathom like coming in and out of this game like I would other games. Because what Hellblade is about is it 
I mean, this game goes emotionally and thematically to places I have never seen a video game breach before, at least in a long-form kind of thing like this. Um, because Hellblade is set in sort of Norse times. It's got, like, uh, there is more to, like, the research of, like, what who Senua is, what tribe she comes from, all that stuff. Right. I didn't dive into it. That's not in the game, but you can go into it. Like, it's a researched game and all that. But, like, you, you know, you there's some of the, like, this version, this game's version of audio logs is one of the voices in your ear telling you stories of Norse mythology, which is amazing and awesome and wonderful. So it's kind of, that's kind of the setting that we have here. But the woman, Senua, we start with her rowing down a river, very heart of darkness, like Joseph Conrad kind sure. of thing. Yeah. And she's going down a river. She has the decapitated head of her uh, boyfriend, Dillian, on her, like, tied to her waistband. I mean, bag. we all carry the decapitated heads of our, our former lovers, don't we? This game would argue we do that metaphorically. Yes, we do. Anyway, um, on, on her, like, waistband, because she is on a journey to go try to bring him to Helheim. And find Hela, basically, and try to free his oh, soul. Oh, from Thor Ragnarok. Yes. And Hela, not Kate Blanchett in this game. Oh, okay. So that Just not, say, not that fun, happy. No, okay. no. But anyway, um, because the way that Dillian died, his soul is basically trapped in Helheim. And she wants to go free him. Senua also has some kind of psychosis. Uh, they have no word for this in Norse times other than the darkness within her, but she is basically schizophrenic right. and has yeah. other issues. Um, and the way the game illustrates this is, as I said, you start rowing down a river, and you're not controlling it yet other than like the camera. It's doing the credits. And the game recommends you play it with headphones. And I need to stress, if you don't play this game with headphones, you're not playing the game. Okay. Like it, it, yeah. This game was recorded with binaural audio. It is intended for a two-channel stereo experience in your ears. Because that's how all the dialogue and the sound design was recorded and whatnot. And this is not just the best use of sound design I've ever heard in a video game, bar none, but also the most innovative. Because what it does is sound is as big a part of this game as any visual, any control input, anything like that. And I don't think I could, I, can, I cannot say that about any other video game I've ever encountered. Because from the beginning, you are having basically a little cacophony of voices in your ears. And they come from all over, and so the binaural aspect of it is really important. Um, you know, I plunked on my um, PlayStation wireless headset, which is a really nice set, and I turned off the, like, virtual surround sound. So it was just the two-channel thing. And it's terrifying from the beginning because it's trying to simulate what this kind of psychosis is. And you have one voice who is almost like a third-person narrator who's, telling, he's, who's addressing us and telling us what Senua is doing, who is always situated, like, right below your left ear. And so by the time she finishes going down that river, the voices in her head have told us and told her that she is going to die from this, that she probably wants to die from this, that she is trying to do this before this psychosis takes over her, and a lot of other dark things, and then you're off to the races. And in part because of that sound design, in part because of the way this game um, visualizes its world and what it does with combat and what it does blending reality, it is an out-of-body experience. It is so intense I real I um I take anxiety medication in part because of a but it because of anxiety but right. because one of the things that manifests um like psychosomatically with me is like a breathing issue and I realized about two hours into Senua's sacrifice that I was frequently not breathing while playing the game because it was so intense in so many ways and half of that was the game and half of that is. I forgot to take my medication before playing this game. And I need to tell you, that should be a warning on the box for okay, this game. Yeah. Don't, if you have some kind of antidepressant, don't forget it before playing Send You a Sacrifice. Because it is legitimately intense. Like, this game has a notice at the beginning that, like, this was developed in tandem with neuroscientists. And if you have had experiences with psychosis, you know, this might be a triggering experience. And that message is not there flippantly. 
what this game is diving into is real and intense and painful. Um, but it is also ultimately an uplifting and beautiful and powerful experience in so many ways. Because the story of this game, as it goes along, like I would say there's a possibility. I don't know if I've ever felt as connected to a video game character as I did to Senua by the end of my playthrough of this game. Because you are in her head. You are with her. The game is mostly a manifestation of things going on in her head. It is not like a real like fantasy story, I would say. And I don't know. You might consider that a spoiler, but I think you'll figure that out about five minutes in when yeah. the voices start talking. Um, so... Everything is, it's an expressionistic work. Everything is coming from her psyche in one way or another. And that is a really powerful thing to realize as you play this game. And so by the end of it, you have explored her story from so many different angles. Even though you are on this, like, dark hero's journey to get to Helheim, it gets into her past in interesting ways. Um, There's a segment near the end of the game where you have to do these, like, four sort of quests that take you to different places and into her past and psyche that I think is the heart of the game and one of the best things I've ever seen in in a video game period. And, you know, you realize that this is the story of a woman who has been outcast and abused and mistreated, and she obviously has something mentally off in her, as many, if not most of us do, that was exacerbated by forces outside her control. And this story ultimately, to me... Like, if you feel like it sounds too dark to play, that might be true. It's a really hard game to play. But, and it's not a fun game. I'm just, it's just not a game that is in any way intending to have a fun time with you. Even though I think it does very interesting things gameplay-wise. Ultimately, I do think this is the story of a woman finding her own identity and confidence again. And, you know, just the way, like, it, it does the voices in her head for, like, half the game is a lot of, like, whenever you get into a fight, it's all the, and you take one hit, it will be like, oh, no, she can't do this, she can't do this, she's too weak, she's too vulnerable. And, of course, those are all parts of her. And so it so nails that part of any kind of, like, depression or anxiety or, or not that I can imagine the kind of thing they're, they're showing off here, which is, like, schizophrenia, but that idea of this dissociative elements in your brain that are constantly trying to pull you down and send you as trying to fight through that. And the internal struggle this game illustrates is so powerful. And how it does that through not just the sound design, but the game design is incredible. Because there's actually, for the for a, as long a game as it is, 9 to 10 hours, there are a lot of different gameplay systems going on in it by the end. Um, one of those is combat. And I don't think the game overdoes the combat. There's actually relatively little of it over the course of the game until near the end where there is more, for I think good reason. Um, but the way the combat works is it's pretty simple. You've got like a heavy strike and a light strike. You've got a block, and you've got like a dodge, and you've got a little melee that can like get a shield away. And the the combat scenarios are all like, you don't like go through the world and happen upon someone and fight them. The game will sit you down and say you're going to have a fight now. And they're almost always, they feel like some kind of manifestation. And the way those fights go, because of like the heaviness of the swords, and like how hard they will hit you, and how hard you can hit them, and how every encounter is kind of a, even if you're, even by the time you get good at the game, every encounter feels like an absolute skin of your teeth thing. It is just the most intense shit. And by the end of every combat encounter in this game, I was breathless, realizing I'd been holding my breath. Like, but also, like, the way Senua does at some points, I wanted to just, like, yell like a primal scream. Like, I got through that fucking fight. And it's an amazing feeling that, as someone who does not actively play, like, Dark Souls or something, I don't right. know if I've ever felt with a game before. Um, 
So all of that's amazing. But honestly, more of the game is this environmental stuff where, like, to get through doors, you'll have to work with runes. And, like, there'll be this rune on the door, and then you have to go find it somewhere in the environment, which is a really interesting mechanic. So, like, the way they do puzzles, sort of, like, the closest analog I can think of is a Naughty Dog kind of thing. But those are often more mechanical kind of puzzles. This is more spiritual, visual, in-the-world kind of stuff. But I found it consistently fascinating. There are whole parts that remind me of almost like a Legend of Zelda dungeon, like a 3D Zelda dungeon, that are like without the combat, that are just very good and very smart and interesting. But all of it is pulling you through and doing something to advance Senua's internal arc. And it is absolutely incredible. And it's hard to talk about. This game does not feel like something I played and digested. It feels like something that happened to me, and I'm having to like recall through a haze of memory sure and it is such a weird experience to have but i think this is one of the best games of this generation i think it's one of the most remarkable things i've ever seen done with the video game medium and it you know it kind of came out of nowhere if you haven't played it you should play this again i say that it's it's gonna be a hard game for people to get through it is a really brutal difficult game you know one of the tweets i said after i finished it at like three in the morning was you know the game is brutal and extreme and harrowing and all of those things are true but i also think the game is deeply deeply humane and what is humane about it is so remarkable and so moving and i think the harrowing stuff is part of that um it is absolutely something you should experience um this is going to be the game i'm probably going to evangelize the way you and some of our listeners have evangelized like near automata yeah because i think it is that kind of game-changing experience Cool. Yeah, so I'll definitely check it out when I have the time. Yeah, so... um, There are a lot of games coming out right now. Yeah, but it's a must-play. And I'll say this. $29.99 is a steal. This could have been a full $60 boxed game, and I I would not bat an eyelash at it. Like, today, I do think we've kind of started to change our view on what constitutes a $60 game. Like, you don't typically get something like a Bioshock 1 coming out just as a campaign for a full $60 that's that length. And this is kind of in that zone, I would say. But, like, um, you know, again, I wouldn't bat an eyelash at it. You know, it's probably going to be the same length as, like, Uncharted The Lost Legacy coming out next week. Sure. Which is yeah. a $40 game. So, um, totally worth the price and worth the experience. Also, a beautiful, beautiful uh, game visually. Like, I cannot... Like, apparently, like, 15 people worked on this game. I couldn't fucking yeah. believe it. No, like, like that, that's always been one of the most remarkable things about Ninja Theory. Because, I mean, that's going back to Heavenly Sword. I mean, Heavenly Sword was one of the games that, like, heavily uh, sort of you know brought in these concepts of like performance capture um so so they have always had that studio has this tradition of having this like really great visual fidelity in particular their characters have like like i mean they were like naughty dog before naughty dog was naughty dog with that stuff and yeah yeah so i'm not surprised to hear that like that element even if it's a smaller team that that element is still incredible yeah it's i just again i i it's i cannot wait for you to play it so we can talk about it because it's a hard game to talk about in the abstract. Which is something you've been saying a lot about our next game, Nier yes. Automata. Yes. All right. Nier Automata came out earlier this year, around the time of like Persona 5 and uh, stuff. Yeah, it was like March, I think yeah. it came out. It came out during the great video game onslaught of yes, March Yes, of where there was like five or six giant video games that came out one after another that were like... The shortest was like Horizon, which was like a 30 hour long game. Yeah. The longest was like Persona or Zelda, which are like 100 hour long games. Yeah, it was nuts. And somehow we we mostly managed to divide and tackle and play b- most of those. Yeah. But we both missed Nier. You played it. You wouldn't shut up about it. Yeah. I played it. I had some issues with it last week. It's a good game. It's a very good game. It's a very good game. Yeah. That 
fucking ending, huh? Alright, spoilers for Nier Automata yes. from here on out. And, like, seriously, spoilers. Like, this is definitely something that I think it is best... It, like, this game is best enjoyed, or at least that, like, the ending of the game is best enjoyed without knowing Can I say what one, they do. One thing before we... If you're still listening, um, no spoilers for this part. Okay. I yeah. want to say to someone playing this, forget about the hype when you start playing this game. Sure. I think it's one of the absolute most harmful things you can put on this game is the hype of the ending. Because it is expecting... Like, the remarkable thing that people are evangelizing about out of, like, the first stretch of this game is unfair to the game. Yeah. And this is my mea culpa a little bit for last week, although also it's hard to... to, It's hard to separate those things, but just play it, take it slow, enjoy it, and just roll with it, and it will become remarkable in time. It is not a game that plays its hand early, or even often at the beginning. It is a patient game. It is a patient game. I do think ultimately it is very worth it. And I say this as someone who this is not necessarily my kind of game. I said this on Twitter and this is not me trying to diss the game. This is never going to be like one of my favorite games just because of I think that the type of gameplay it has and kind of the type of storytelling is not my niche necessarily. I still found it really remarkable and valuable. As you said, it's just a game that if you have any interest in video games as a medium, you owe it to yourself to play. Yeah. Spoilers. Okay, spoilers. So, Sean... Last time we recorded, uh-huh. I, we yeah, talked for like 10-15 minutes about I was getting pretty frustrated on, you know, Route B, so two plays through the campaign. Yeah, because that was, you had literally just finished Route, Route B, B yeah. and we're on the precipice of getting to, like, the Route C stuff, and now you understand, like, my weird position of, like, how do you talk to someone when you have finished the game, when they're at that point, and not tell them what happens? It's amazing... Just how immediately, when starting Route C, the game... I don't want Better is a bad word to use, but gets it, it plays its hand. It plays its hand. In that, where you start in Route C, with Yorha going to shit, yeah. and everything dying, and the game completely changes up how it's throwing its combat system at you, for the better, I think. Um, and starts playing with perspective, and starts playing with the meta-narrative more... Um, those 90 minutes or so before you see the title roll again. Right, yes. Yeah. Um, or maybe for the first time. Does it give you the title at the beginning? Uh, yes, it does. Okay, because yeah. I, I didn't remember it. I'm like, it kind of would be fitting for that to be the first time you see the title card. Sure, yeah. Because, yeah, after you've seen the credits twice. But yeah, like, it is, it is a weird thing to say. You have to sort of play through one campaign twice from a slightly different perspective to get to the game playing its hand, but it's true... And it does feel worth it in that moment. Those 90 minutes or so before the game opens back up again and you can choose your route between A2 and 9S. And it's great from there on out, too. Yeah. But, like, boy howdy, that's a stretch of video game. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Let, let me address something on a gameplay level that okay. immediately clicked into place for me. And it is a complaint I have with the earlier two campaigns that I think they could have done more with. But um, the, the combat gets so much better on mm. Route C. I feel like. Like, I went from not really finding it interesting to, oh my god, this is really good when the game knows how to use it. And what it is, is in Route C, so you have this whole part where you have to, you're on the ground trying to destroy the machines, and then all of Yorha goes crazy against you, and the machines are going crazy, right? And so what it does is, that combat to me works best when you just throw a crazy, ludicrous, dumbass amount of shit at the player. 
Sure. Yeah. And what it does is it forces you, like, when you have that many things coming at you, and Route C does this a lot, like, it's really good at upping the ante, is you can't just stand back and fire your gun. That's never going to wipe everyone out. It would take too long and you'd get hit and all that stuff. So you have to be firing your pod. You have to be using a mix of light and heavy strikes. You have to be blocking. You have to be dodging. You have to be moving and very mobile. And all of that, I find really thrilling like when the combat is is making you work for it i think it's a really good combat system and i think i would amend what i said last time my issue earlier on is not with i think the combat system i think it's with the way the game uses it sometimes like and again i do understand why they don't go batshit crazy with it until root c because there's a narrative reason for that that you right. have to feel it when it gets crazy right and yeah. i think the game generally in in throughout the game does a good job of putting you in the shoes of whatever perspective you're in um, but like early on, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you can kind of just sleepwalk through, at least on normal difficulty, in the early parts of Route A and B. And my favorite part of any Route A and B is probably from a gameplay perspective. Like narratively, I love the end of Route B is really interesting. But um, from a gameplay perspective, is that part in Route A when you're going through the factory of machines who think they're becoming gods? Yes. And that one is also like visually and aesthetically and narratively, it's wonderful. But also like it throws a crazy amount of shit at you. And you're barely ahead of the game. And that's wonderful. When you get to Route C, they start consistently doing that where the ante has been upped and the machines are going nuts. And it's just like, stay on your toes or you're going to die. And I think at that point, the combat, I was having so much fun with it. And then I think on top of that also, like that big shift in the status quo where the bunker is gone and the commander is gone and the command system is gone. And I think if you do it right, you start out playing as A2. And then everything's different. And then it's like, okay, now I really feel so incentivized to go explore the world. Because I think my issue with the open world wasn't as much the world itself as, like, did I feel fully incentivized to just go live in it? As A2, I did. Because everything felt so different and interesting and unique to me. And I wanted to get to know this character. And the side quests for her and 9S in that stretch of the game are so essential. Like, you wouldn't know who the the two characters who die are if you didn't play their side quests. So stuff like that. Um... All of it. Like, almost every system in the game just snapped into place for me. The narrative started snapping into place. And and the narrative takes a lot longer to fully show its hand, too, because, you know, the game is piling up questions until the end, which it mostly answers philosophically, not literally. Right, yeah. Is that a good way to say it? Sure, yes. Um, I mean, like, because I think one of the main ways that the story is constructed is it, like, gives you all these assumptions at the beginning. And, like, like and, and some of them I think you're supposed to kind of, like, look at and be like, mm, maybe this human thing is kind of fishy. For me, it was always like, that alien stuff has got to be horseshit, right? Which is yes. maybe, like, the greatest cosmic joke about Nier Automata is as far as I can understand, the aliens are totally real. The aliens totally attacked. The aliens totally brought the machines. None of that is fake. But there's all these assumptions about, like, how the machines are, how the androids are, and, like, some of them, there are a lot of surface-level ones, I think, you're, you expect the player to be like, hmm, like, maybe, like, like, obviously the machines are not going to be just stupid, or why would you even make this game? Like, of course the story's going to go there, but, like, there are those surface-level assumptions, but then it starts stripping those away, and stripping those away, and then by the time you start getting to the meat of, like, Route C... I feel like you're like it starts stripping away assumptions that you didn't think it was ever going to strip away, and like it starts getting like really raw and just like intense in a very existential way. Because that's the other thing is what it does as it starts in Route C, particularly leveraging its own gameplay systems to tell the story is yeah. fascinating. Like what's most powerful about those ninety minutes, like at the start of Route C, is 
you play through 2B's death. Like, and in excruciating detail, like down to you have to walk across half the fucking map as a dying 2B and you keep losing power and these things. And And like all your systems are shutting off one by one. Yeah, and boy, it kicks you off on the right foot. And I think makes A2 such an immediate, who's my favorite probably protagonist in the game, on such an interesting foot right off the bat. And then where it goes from there, it it just keeps getting more interesting in some ways. And it's it's so fascinating to me because the game deepens itself emotionally, I think, with the characters and its philosophy. Even as it keeps zooming out to more and more of a meta-narrative, which is ultimately what the game is. Yeah. It's a massive postmodern meta-narrative. And yet, these characters who I didn't quite think I cared about, I really cared about by the end. And yeah. the one character I always cared about, Pascal... Broke my fucking heart. Yeah. Uh-huh. God yeah. damn it. This fucking game, Sean. Well, like, because I think one of the ways that the characters are built, because, like, I mean, you don't know, like, learn, like, a incredibly important character detail until, like, the very, very, very end of the game, which is that 2B is not just, you know, 9S's friend who's going along and, like, they're just on a mission together. Her assignment is... She's 2E, which is something that if you play one of the side quests in 9S, you get introduced to that concept earlier where you run into another executioner model. Um, but she is assigned to be with 9S whenever he starts getting a little bit too close to finding out like the true nature of what the Yorha unit is, which he's always going to do because he's a really high-level scanner hacker unit. And so she is there to kill him over and over and over and over again. And that like revelation to me... like opens up everything about those two characters because it's like there's as because again it is a very existentialist kind of narrative like it wears that on its sleeve like it literally name drops Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir with the whole like the the singing robot and the the Jean Paul side quests and so like it is definitely like very immediately and apparently interested with very existentialist questions and a big part of existentialist stories is that all the characters have to have this like deep deep, just, like, dense, repressed ball of angst, like, buried super deep down there that you don't know about that, like, eventually, like, at the end of the game, utterly explodes. I mean, like, 9S is fucking drowning in it by the end of the game, like, and in his own fucking blood at the end of one of the endings. <laughs> Jesus, yeah. And, and But, like, in that, like, moment of, like, it just sort of, like, blossoming, getting out there, it's like, oh, that's, like, that's that's their relationship. And, and it, like, especially, because I'm, uh, have almost done with my second playthrough like I wasn't even really intending to play through the whole game again by just like when you're playing it again you see all these little details in their relationship that's like okay yes that like all that stuff is set up in a really yeah, smart well, way because I noticed I mean it's a very it's like one of the last lines of Rude is her saying why does it always, always have to end yeah. like this and it, the game asks you to like file that away and I did yeah. and I was waiting for the payoff to that and it makes me wait a long time yeah. but it's worth it because it also because there's just enough with having because you know that's like the opening of the game is them both they both die at the end of that prologue which yeah. is the demo of the game by the way is that section and so the demo of the game that I played in like February or January whenever that came out ended with both those characters dying and I thought that they were just I didn't think for a very long time until like I started reading reviews and stuff like oh they are those are actually the protagonists of the game I thought those characters died at the end and it was a totally different character or something because I yeah. never assumed that they were going to survive the giant explosion. But like that that's that scene is enough to justify to yourself like oh maybe that's what she kind of is saying there. And like th- like there's enough of a justification in that that it's such a long time from her saying that line to you getting that piece of information that like like you say it's like filed really deep in the back of your head at that point. It's like, oh 
fuck, that's right. All that stuff, all but, those scenes, all those little moments. Like, Y2B is this, like, really stoic, reticent kind of character who always seems like she is on the verge of emoting something, but then always pulls back at the last second. Yeah. Like, all of that makes it, like, gets a totally different light by that revelation. It does. And, and you know, it's, you file it away, but it, it goes into a file with other things. So, like, yeah. by the time you get to Route C, I was pretty sure we were going to get into something about a cycle. Something about some kind of circular sort of thing going on right. in this story. And we do, yes and no, you know, in various ways. In a number ways. of different ways, yeah. But, yeah, um... So, but it's all adding up, and it's adding up in ways I think that are very subconscious, and then it makes them conscious for you yeah. later on. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so much to talk about with the actual ending, but I don't want to jump there like too fast okay, because sure, I yeah. think I don't want to ignore how much good storytelling there is in Route C, particularly for me on the A2 stuff. Which, if I have any complaint about the back half of the game, is I wish there was a little more with A2. Sure, just yeah. in that like. She is such a fascinating character, and she doesn't quite get the same level of focus as 2B and 9S do. And on one level, she's like a different side of 2B, so I kind of get it. But I also just, I would like a couple more missions or something. She's sure. so interesting. Um, not that that hurt my enjoyment yeah. of the character, because I think she's fascinating. But I also think there's something about like how like for, at arm's length you are with her because of the manner when she's introduced yeah. and like the relative brevity she is in the game that is part of I think the appeal of the character yeah. I think like if there's too much stuff with her I sure. think it would, it would complicate things in ways that would be negative to the overall story yeah, yeah. but I it's it's just it's a too much of a good it's not enough of a good thing thing right sure. for me like yeah. you want more of something when it's good even if maybe you shouldn't have it um, but no she's a fascinating character and the stuff that you go into with her as kind of an outcast, and she is at arm's length from a lot of the cast, and she is, you know, slowly starting to warm to the idea of the machines and these sorts of things. But there are so many remarkable moments in that stretch. Like, the part where you go to the resistance camp, and you talk to Anemone. Yeah. You're like, hey, there's some info over on that computer. It's right, like, yeah. Okay, I wonder what that is. Oh, it's like a 30-minute visual novel. Uh-huh. About the origins of these characters, and it's so good. And the game like does... the third battle of Pearl Harbor or something, yeah. which is very good. Yes, and that that visual novel part, and there are a few more. In fact, the game basically climaxes on a visual novel. Yeah, um, I really, really want Yoko Taro to write a full visual novel. He's really good at it. Yeah, and boy howdy, is this game a a um, triumph of localization that they were able to get that across? Because um, you know, I'm only reading it in English, and it's beautiful, beautiful writing. And also, of course, what it has to do with the end credits, I assume, was a big trial of localization. But all of it, like, uh, it comes across so beautifully that I wanted more of that stuff, too. But you have that. You have the whole part in Pascal's Village, which is one of the, like, most distressing things I've ever seen in a video game. And it's interesting. I want to talk about the machines for a second. Okay, sure. consistently through the first two routes, A and B, the machines are the most interesting thing, I think. Yes. I also, like, while I'm thinking about it, I just want to quickly interject... Like, you fight a lot of robot and machine enemies in Sonic the Hedgehog, and I think about that in a very different way than playing Nier Automata. It's like, you well, always it's... think about the machines in video games as just like these mindless enemies like in Sonic the Hedgehog that you can kill because they're not animals or people, so it's fine for kids. And then, like, it's just like, ah, oh, this is, I can't do this. I, I, like, this is sad. It makes, like, I, I, like, legitimately was pretty depressed anytime I had to start fighting machines at a certain point in the game, which is a very constant thing because you yes. know... They don't mean to. They're like they're not these violent like invaders or anything. Like this is this is much their home as it is yours. It's and it's something on some level. I wish the game had, had leveraged a little more at some point. But it is 
I felt that so consistently starting basically in Route B. Once I basically the opening B, of Route B, Route B Jesus. that was my favorite thing in the first two routes is the opening of Route B where you have the the brother brother yes. I must save you brother and he gets the oil and all that beautiful short film as a video game. Yeah. And, yeah, everything from there is just, like, it's these machines basically developing consciousness, but in the most weird-ass way possible a lot of the time, and yet it aches. It aches mm-hmm. so intensely, and all of that is kind of built up to, it's like this imperfect consciousness, right? That they're growing it, but they can't maintain it, and then you get to the point with, like, Pascal's village, and it just tears them all apart. And what you have to do to Pascal at the end of that, oh god, it's just the whole thing. And it's just wrenching, and that is a moment where the game fully leverages everything you did in Route A and B. Yeah. Basically, you did all of it twice. And, it's, and, I, and the thing is, at the end of the game, there are no clear answers for what's going on with the machines. I so thought that was going to be the big turning point, and it never is. You never get to sit down with like the architect of this world, like Matrix right. style, sure, yeah. where they talk about what's going on with the machines. It's ultimately like they're teaching you something that you learn at the end of the game. And, I mean, they're part of also the meta-narrative and everything. Right, yeah. But I think there's just such a fascinating aspect of this thing. Well, I think, like, one of the main ways that the machines are set up is that they are... Because this is something, like, you are... It implies this constantly, but it's something that uh, Adam very directly says to 9S in the Ruby stuff of, like, that visual novel where he's talking to you. He's like, oh, you, you are thinking about wanting to, mm, like, to be right now, aren't you? Like, that, that, that visual novel part. He says, like... Or, or 9S sort of discovers, oh, like... They're trying to emulate humans. Like, that's, like, they are, for whatever reason, like, they are finding all these old, like, artifacts and, and books and, and history and stuff about humans who are long gone. Like, humans have been dead in this on this world for, like, 10,000 years or something ridiculous. Like, they are, it's ancient, ancient history. But the machines are recovering this information. And, like, Pascal is doing this as well. Like, researching all these things and trying to emulate them. And, like, that serves as both a, like, one, like, you shouldn't, like, you are not humans. Like, you should be doing your own thing. Like, like, don't look for this weird, like, outer exterior thing. And there's, like, a lot of stuff we can talk about with how religion is used as a theme of the game. Because humans are basically the god of this world. Like, uh, the, the commander of Yorha basically says as much to 9S is that we need a god to fight for. That's why they, like, keep the humans, the legend of the humans out there. But the machines are trying to replicate this human behavior. And through that, like, kind of, like, weird lens you get all this perspective on, like, what human behavior is like, which is not an uncommon thing in any way in science fiction storytelling, but I think the way that Nier Automata goes about it... It feels uncommon. It feels uncommon. Like, it's such a unique version. I think my favorite one of it, which is something I didn't fully, I think, kind of come around on and, like, really understand what was going on until my second playthrough was getting back to the the, um, Forest Kingdom and what they do with... The king of the forest. I don't know if you found the. Um, there's a side quest in there where you find a like log that kind of tells you a little bit more about the background of that area. But like that whole story is that this one robot dislike and sort of like was smarter than the rest and decided like we're going to cut ourselves off from the network and all this stuff and we're going to build a kingdom here to protect ourselves and 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 then I'm going to like you know basically they make him their king and they build this kingdom and then over time that king stretches himself so far by trying to help everyone and they're kind of like connecting to him in the network and everything that he shuts down doesn't function anymore so they take part of his like core or whatever and take it out and put it in a tiny baby robot and put it in a carriage and wait for it to grow up, but it's never going to grow up because they're robots, and that's not how their life cycle works. Like, they can't have sex, they don't grow up, they don't, like, reproduce, like, they don't have any of those things that's not, they're not biological creatures. But I think the thing that is most interesting about that to me is that, like, 
that's no different than how any fucking monarchy works. Because as every fucking monarchy is, so there's one dude or or lady if it's a queen. That's like, you are so good at this. Like, you're just an amazing head of state. Like, you have, like, saved our land from these, like, evil invaders. And, and like, you know, your, your economic policy is amazing. All this stuff is like, you've made us such a prosperous land. And then you, this person dies. And then you just, like, expect this soul of this person. And, like, like kind of literally in a lot of, like, the divine right of king kind of philosophy of this like like soul or right to pass to their heir and then expect them to somehow just be just as good and be the same king and grow up to be that person it's like that's obviously not how it fucking works you idiots like like that baby is not the king the king died and and i think it's those little elements of like that it's it's like really offbeat and very strange and i think and the game is not very like confrontational about how it presents you with a lot of those ideas but they're like there when you're digging for them and it's really like really fascinating the things that like sort of the the lens you have to look at human society and like government and philosophy or like love with the Simone character like like through this weird machine lens of them trying to replicate human behavior but so many of the things of that inform human behavior like like just like biological needs do not exist for the machines and yet you by the machines trying to do them without those biological drives you kind of see that like oh well even with the biological drives those things are a lot of times stupid and meaningless and bad and wrong just because we grow up like just because we like physically love someone and, and are able to procreate and that kind of stuff doesn't mean that these needs and desires and wants we have aren't fucking stupid and that we shouldn't be slaved to them yeah exactly i mean it it has this you know like thirty thousand foot view on a lot of these themes um you know, uh, one of the things that came to mind a lot while playing this for me was, because we talked about it on episode 200, was um, Stanley Kubrick's 2001. Yeah. Where I think it, I mean, okay, they're very different tonally and sure, aesthetically yeah. and all that, but I think they exist in the same kind of philosophical space of, they're not, I mean, and, and Neard has more of like clear protagonists and, and stories, you know, and whatnot with characters, but it still is less about like those individual human stories as it is the 30,000 foot philosophical view um, through this, you know, abstracted lens of science fiction. And, again, that's not necessarily the kind of storytelling I connect to as much, but I respect the hell out of it and find it amazing, and I find it amazing with Nier 2. And yeah. there are moments where it converges with what feels like very, for lack of a better word, human storytelling, even though there are literally no humans in this game. Yes. Um, yeah. And that, you know, I think that the Pascal Village stuff is a moment of that where you are confronted with how much you have come to care for these characters and this village of fucking robots, you yeah. know? And uh, the kicker is when the children just killed themselves. Yes, because they have learned the concept of fear from Pascal. And so again, like trying to emulate or, or replicate human behavior in some way, they destroy themselves. And so the only way to fix that for Pascal is either to kill her, which leads to a band ending, or and it feels like either one should kind of work, but or to wipe her memory. And or I, there's is actually a third choice. You can just walk away and force Pascal to live with the knowledge of what Jesus, you can? What happens? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't done it. I just heard that you can. I oh think boy. I might do that on this playthrough just to see. I don't know if I'll have the stomach for it. That's like... That's, that's just... It is off topic, but that reminds me of... In Mist 3 Exile, 
the third okay. Myst game. I, I must admit, I'm not intimately familiar with that specific Myst game. It's okay. I can I can summarize the story for you really quickly. The villain Saavedro, played by um, God, what's his name, Wormtongue from um, the Two Towers, the Lord oh, of the Rings. Geez, yeah, I don't know. Um, I can't. Yeah, but anyway, he uh, who's great in that game, um, Saavedro, like he has stolen one of your special books with the land. He's trying to get revenge because your sons fucked him over. But anyway, um, at the end of that game, you are the way you like end that game is you catch him in a cage, Saavedro, and make and then he will give you the book. But you have the option at that point of like by catching him in that cage, you've also figured out like a system because Mist, of course, it's got all the mechanical systems and stuff right. where you can get him back to his home world so he can go back to his wife and kids. And that's how you're supposed to end the game, like a nice little ending where you send him away and he like you make amends with him. Well, there are a couple ways you can do the ending, including like letting him out and then he'll just come kill you. Or you can just leave him in the fucking cage and leave and end the game. And my dad, I didn't ever play Myst 3 Exile, but my dad loved the Myst games. And when I was a little kid, we would be in his office and watch him play Myst. And we like watched him do all of Myst 3. And he got to the end and he played it a couple times. And now he was going to do it with the ending where he just let Savedro be there. And he ended the game that way and felt so fucking guilty like, he talked about it a lot. Like, I still, like, three years later, he'd be, like, on a boat in Canada, being like, I still feel bad about what I did to Saavedro. If I did that to Pascal, yeah. that would be my Saavedro. It'd be something to have to live with. The actor yeah. is Brad Dorf, by the way. Brad Dorf, yes. yes. The great Brad Dorf. He's, he's wonderful in that game with the uh, full motion video stuff. But anyway, back to Nier Automata. Yes, yeah. back, back to Pascal. And, of course, the most brilliant moment of all of that is if you leave Pascal alive and wipe his memories. Uh-huh. Uh, as 9S, you later go there, and he is alone just completely has no personality anymore and it's just selling the parts of his dead kids. Mm-hmm. And it's it's nice because those parts are... Ni- you need to use them to upgrade your weapons and he sells a weapon oh. that you can't get any other way. So it's like, on the one hand, I really sort of like materialistically benefit from this. On the other hand, my soul is utterly destroyed. So it's the perfect metaphor for capitalism. And I never engaged with the uh, weapon upgrade stuff, so I never... No, really, yeah. There's, there's some interesting stuff in that. The, the one thing I like about um, that is you... Each weapon has this like story or some of them are kind of like poems some of them like small narratives that you unlock as you level them up to the max levels level four and they're just like weird little like side things but yeah okay that's interesting i mean i I upgraded some when like the option was there but i never really figured out that there's a lot of little systems in the game that i like the fishing thing i only realized that was a thing when i looked up where to find the last pod sure yeah Yeah, you're not going to know to find that pod by fishing in the ruined city no No, there's, there's a lot of stuff like that but anyway um, so yeah, there's just, I think Route C is full of little story points like this that are deeply felt and very interesting. 9S's Route is very fun, or not fun. Fun is That's the, not the absolutely the wrong word What word was I looking for? Uh, it's tragic. Fasc- fascinating, I think is the word I was okay. looking for. Tragic, that too, where, uh, you know, you're going through this and just the putting yourself in the psyche of that character, uh, and how much he is breaking down and, you know, basically doing, going robo-crazy yeah. is, uh, very interesting. And I love all the stuff between the two pods. Yes, plot who, zero four two and one five three. Who become like the key to the fucking end game? Uh-huh. I mean, it's thematic. I mean, that was for the longest time my theory because I knew before playing Nier Automata, I knew there was something crazy about the ending. Yeah, and and so like my theory always was, oh, like you're probably like like there's going to be some weird thing where you're actually just playing as the pods because the pods are always there when you're playing as the different characters, and that theory was like a quarter true kind of but I thought there was going to be a part where it like pulls out and you realize like oh like my player character is actually the pod the whole time and you like attached to someone else which again like kind of half true but the game doesn't that's not really what the ending is so let's talk about the ending okay yeah uh, first off yeah um, the, I ran a little hot and cold on the boss fights in this game although I think they got better in the second half 
the boss fight getting up the tower oh, yeah. is outstanding. It's one of the most amazing video game like action set pieces I've ever seen. Like yeah. where it culminates, like because the game has been playing ever since like the start of Ruby, been playing with the idea of like perspective and who you are playing as, which I always love when video games do that. And so you're like jumping around to all these characters, and like you know you play as like that little machine at the beginning, Root B. Then you're 9S in Root B, and then you start Root C as as 2B, and then you're A2 and switching off with like A2 and 9S. Although there's actually a lot of stuff you cutting between 2B and 9S in the first part of Root yes. C. You have that little bit where you're playing as Pascal, but then it ultimately culminates in that scene of you fighting up the tower on the inside as A2 using your like third person action combat to fight the giant like kind of like robot enemy, and then at the same time. You or cutting to 9S, flying up the side of it in the glider thing, fighting, like, with the bullet hell gameplay, fighting another boss, and, like, it's just cutting between the two with the music, like, ramping up and ramping up. It's just incredible. It's incredible, and it, but it starts so slow. Like, it takes its time, where it's, like, you'll have, like, what feels like a bull fu- full boss fight with one, full boss fight with the other. You realize the guy keeps coming back, and then once it settles into its structure... It'll be kind of long breaks, and then they're shorter and shorter and shorter until it's like five seconds back and forth, and then you're on the roof, and then it's the the two enemies combine, and the two player characters basically combine, and yeah. you switch between them. Yeah, it is out of this world. It's yeah, it is like one of the most intense action climaxes I've ever seen. Like it's just so, it, and it's just one of those things where it makes you feel like fuck, man. Like you could not have done this in a video game ten years ago. No, like this just like. We have the processing power to be able to like switch between those characters that quickly and seamlessly and load those assets in so fast. It's like, fucking, this is awesome. Yep. I don't know why I've never done this in a video game before was kind of how I felt. Definitely. And, and you know, it's funny you say like we couldn't have done this 10 years ago because so much of Nier does feel like one of those PS2 games from like the early 2000s. Maybe the last time we had a really big renaissance of Japanese game development. Yeah. And just the weird kind of games you would get. But obviously, it couldn't have been realized 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. So, all right. But then you get to the top of the tower... You either kill A2, or you kill 9S, or you kill them both. Oh, I mean, you, yeah, you, you kill them both. Yes. And uh, then shit happens. Sean, I, you clearly have something to say about okay. it. So I'll let you go first. Yeah. So, like, like first, I just want to walk through my experience with this ending, because I think that's an important part of it. And it's one of the things that, like, the ending, you know, like, people have said over and over again, and they think it's very true, but it was something that, first, when I was hearing it, I rolled my eyes about it, because it's something people say all the fucking time about video games, and I end up rolling my eyes about it. Is like, oh, like this is something like you can only ever experience in a video game. And it's like, well, I mean, every video game is like that. Like, I always think people really underestimate the basic fundamental qualities of how a video game can change a story. But, like, I didn't have the full perspective of what they really <laughs> right. meant. Like, how far they were making that argument. Not just, like, on a basic level of, like, people said that all the time about Brothers of Tale, Two Sons. And it's like, sure, I guess, but I don't think what they do in that game is necessarily that much more amazing than, like... What, how Persona 3, like, uses some of his video game systems to, like, change how you feel about characters. But, like, Nier Automata, like, that is very true, is that it is rethinking and, and repackaging how you use video game modes and genres and, and stuff to tell stories and change, like, the inflection and the theme and explore these sort of ideas in a story. So that's kind of, like, the, the setup for the ending is kind of knowing that it's going to basically do that. But I also had this, uh, but, but then, like, one big part of that is, I think, one of the most amazing things about how video games can tell stories um, is that it's totally unique to you, the player. And, like, that experience is totally unique, and I think that's really important about Nier in a lot of different ways. Um, but it's something that one fun thing about video games is you have, like, these stories about how you experience something for the first time. And for me, I feel like I have, like, the way that Nier Automata's ending is set up is, like, built to give you this, like, specific kind of it, moment. It 
asks you to have the epiphany, it doesn't give you the epiphany. Yeah. And that's a key distinction. Yeah. So how I encountered root E, which is what it basically is, is one, I thought that there was going to be an actual root E. Like, I thought there was going to be, in the way that there was a root C, I, by having heard, like, to talk about the game on podcast, I thought there was going to be, like, a whole other part of the game where maybe you, like, go back and are playing as 2B again, but, like, things are changed or something, like, like and thought there would be something crazy, but I thought it was going to be something like that, not what we actually got. So... I was playing the game. It was very late at night. It was like 11 to like noon or, or noon, midnight-ish at <laughs> night. It was very late. I played the game all, all the night through. No, it was like 11 or midnight, like somewhere around there when I got the, the end of, I got ending C, which is if A2, you pick A2 in the fight, you get ending C, which I think that's kind of the way they intend yes. you to do it because, well, like I think 9S is a great character. He is also, you do not want to be 9S. Like no. you, you are, you, he's, you know, very volatile and toxic by the end of that game. So I think you want to pick A2, who is has by far the happier of the two endings. Um, it's like still, it's a sad ending, but like if there's a bit more sort of like bittersweetness to it, like you can see a bit more hope in it. And so then you, once you get one of those two endings, you um, unlock these things. And like the game comes up with this screen that says, you've unlocked like mission select mode and like some like, like round based thing or whatever it's called. It's like, oh, that's cool. Debug mode. Yeah, debug mode. That's what they call it. So it's like, you've unlocked these things. Like, that's awesome. It's like, and I, at this point, even though I hadn't seen the full ending, like I was so in love with this game because I didn't even really have some of the problems you had with Root A and B. So I was like, so riding a massive high on this game. I was like, holy shit, that ending was amazing. Like that, I fucking love the ending credit song and hearing the ending credit song again is awesome. And it's like, oh, awesome. I like, because you unlock this really robust mission select mode. I don't know if you looked at it before. I did, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, because like... You, well, you have to look through it. That's what's interesting about it. Oh, yeah, that's true. You have to engage with it to get back to the other ending. So it's like, but it's like this incredibly robust mission select screen. That's awesome. Because it like tells you, oh, in this chapter, you have this many side, qu- side quests finished and all this stuff. And you can go to like every single chapter. So it's between which characters were playable in those chapters. And I was like... This is amazing because there was some... By the time I was getting to the end of the game, I was kind of skipping some side quests because I was so propelled by the momentum of the story. I really want to go back and play those. And like I have all these materials I got from fighting through this tower. And I want to go finish some of my weapon upgrades and read all these weapon stories because I had gotten a number of weapons up to level 4. And I just hadn't been reading the weapon story thing until I got them all unlocked. I was like, oh, I'm going to go and read all those. There's also this message that it gives you that says the woman with the strange robot mask in in the, the resistance camp has a message for you or something to tell you. I'm like, okay. About that, yeah. And that, in my head, that was like, that's gotta be what Root E is. Because like, I knew that like, it's not gonna play its hand immediately what Root E is. I was like, either I have to start a new game or I have to go talk to that lady and that will lead me on a breadcrumb trail to Root E. I was like, and that was my mental process. Like, that's gonna be what it is. Before I do that, I'm gonna like, for because it's getting late, I'm gonna see the other ending and then turn the game off and like, like go to bed and then tomorrow I'm going to wake up, like wipe up a bunch of those side quests, do all this other stuff I wanted to do because it's all left there for me to do and I get to go back and finish it with this really awesome mission select mode. And then I'll go talk to that lady and go find what Rudy is and I'm, this is going to be a great ending. And let me guess, by the next morning you didn't have a save in your automata. Basically, that's how this story is going to go. So, yes. So, I watch Root, the ending D, which is... So fucking brutal. Um, that like the way that 9S dies, and I also I played with the uh, Japanese voice acting, and I watched like I think like the English voice acting is very good, but I don't think the English voice acting voice actor for 9S quite captures the squeal the the Japanese actor does when he dies. It is 
the most fucking brutal thing to watch. I should say, like, I think it's an amazing dub, and I think that actor in has been in a ton of stuff this year, and he's so good. He's very good. He's yeah. the protagonist of Fire Emblem Echoes, too, and I think... Um, uh, he does a great job, but I could even—I did not listen to the Japanese track. I would actually love to play through the game again, in part to do it in Japanese. But you could just tell, like, he's trying to emulate something that is so uniquely Japanese yeah. in some of those yells and stuff that, it's like, just, you, it's yeah, it's it just—it's so hard to watch because it just holds on that for so long with the sword on him. He's just like slipping in his own blood. It's fucking brutal. Yeah, and so then you get the ending credits again. I'm like, okay, that's great. And I was like, I think I was looking at my phone. And then all of a sudden, Pod 042 starts talking to yep. you while the credits are playing. You're like, what? Oh, shit. Oh, shit. And then, like, the slow yep. realization of what's happening, and they're asking you these questions about, like, do you want to give up? Like, blah, blah, blah. Like, do you want to, like, see, like, finish this thing? Like, let's take this to the real ending. Like, we don't want, like, like this is not how this ends. Like, we have to, there, there's something more we can do here. And, you know, the two pods are having that argument. And so then it starts what is... The best boss fight in any video game ever. Pretty much, yeah. You fight the fucking... You literally fight the ending of the game. And it is you, the bullet hell mechanics, but you fighting through the ending credits of the game. It is basically... how In my mind, how this worked out is Yogatado, who's, who's the sort of like the... Basically the Kojima-esque figure for the game. He's like the, the big... The, kind of the game design lead. And it is a very sort of interesting... Uh, personality if you've read any interviews with him which a lot have come out since this game because this game like has sold over 2 million copies it's a like weird success for how like strange of a game it is um, but he's like a weird guy and in my mind how this sequence started was he was really drunk one night which he tweets a lot about getting drunk and he was playing for whatever reason he was playing through the arcade mode of Super Smash Bros. Melee and got to the end of Super Smash Bros. Melee where you have this fun little like Star Foxy minigame where you're shooting all the credits he's like this is a great idea I'm gonna fucking do this and I'm gonna break your heart while I'm doing it yep. because you're fighting through the ending credits and it's amazing and the fucking ending credits song Way to the World is building up and building up and building up and then but then eventually as you get deeper and deeper into it it just gets impossibly hard like once you I think I believe it's once you get to the Square Enix PR team. Yes, yes, Which yes. is, like, the best thing that it's... Once you get to the fucking PR team, which are the people who are nice enough to let you know you should play the game again after Route A. So it's like, I don't know what Yokotaro has against the PR team. But he has something against the PR team, and they are brutally difficult to, to, to destroy that credit with, the, with your sort of, like, bullet hell mechanics. And so you just die over and over and over again. And then by every time you die, you get, like, this screen with all these weird messages about, like... Don't give up, man. You can do it, David. And like all these kind of things. And you see this this stuff. And like, what the fuck is going on? And then eventually... and they'll ask you questions each time. Like, yes. do you think games are silly little things? Yeah, it's like, no. And yeah, it like keeps on asking these things. It's like, you want to give up? Fucking no. And it, yeah, it keeps on asking like all these questions. Like, is this important? Like, yes, it's important, motherfucker. Like, and you just keep on doing that. And like the music is building up and building up. And this like chorus starts coming in. And it's switching between... Um, the three different languages of the Way to the World song. There's the English one from Route A, the Japanese one from Route B, and then C and D have like the fake Frenchy language. So it's like switching between all of those, and then you just have this like like chorus of, of voices in the background singing along with the song, and then eventually, um, like you are offered this help of like, do you want to like, do you really want to do this? Like, yes, it's like you join forces. There's all these other ships surround you, and all of a sudden you're super powerful, and you're wiping through the credits. You're shooting like a hundred blasts every time you pull the trigger, and every time you get hit, like you are not destroyed. One of the other little ships surrounding you is destroyed. But when that happens, a little message is going to play in the bottom left that says like, da ba da ba da ba does data has been destroyed, and like, 
that's kind of weird, but not really thinking about it because I'm in this super powerfully triumphant mode of just like this this powerful sort of connectedness all of a sudden where you start to realize that you're not alone playing this game, that like everybody is in this together. Like everybody wants to see this tragic conclusion have some sort of silver lining, want to fight for something that like something better, some better conclusion that could happen for these characters that you've come to care about over this like 40 hour long fucking game. And so you're playing through it and then finally you triumph. Finally, you destroy the, the, the ending credits and you've won this like small opportunity and you get that the, the great cutscene of the pods sort of like like rebuilding um, um, all the characters and sort of they have this fun little conversation about how actually I, I wrote down some of the lines because I, I think because if you have on um, pod 153 opens up with a line that like she sort of like recontextualizes and brings up the line from the very beginning of the game that 2B gives us a little speech and, and she says everything that lives is designed to end they are perpetually trapped in a never-ending spiral of life and death however life is all about struggle within this cycle that is what we believe and then Pod042 says, the possibility of a different future also exists. A future is not given to you. It is something you must take for yourself. And so they're sort of talking about this and they're talking about how um, if you're putting everything back the way it was, like with their like memories and who they were and, and all that stuff, how is there ever going to be another conclusion? And that's where, where Pod042 says that there is this possibility for another future. There is at least a chance that things could be better. I felt like... And at that point, I was, like, so high on this game. Like, like that whole sequence is so triumphant. I think it has such a brilliant understanding of tragedy as a genre, which we'll talk about more. Um, but then after that, you get a black screen, and Pod042 starts talking to you again. And he basically starts asking you these series of questions that, like, are slowly building up to this idea of, like, you need to, like, do you want to help other people do this? Like, yeah. Like, do you, like, are you really committed to the idea of helping these people? Like, yeah, no. Like, I want to, yeah. Like, I'm all in on this. In the back of your head, you're like, I think I'm maybe kind of seeing where this is going now. And it's like, well, you're going to have to sacrifice your sin. Like, we can upload your data and help other people to, like, change their ending too. But you're going to have, there's going to be a price. There's going to be a cost here. You're going to have to upload your data. Your saved data will be wiped. And it's like all this, and it's like, are you sure you want to do this? And and this is the part where I'm sitting there thinking like, I really wanted to do all this fucking side quest. Like, I really wanted to go see what that weird robot lady same way, yeah. was going to say. Like, I still haven't read all these 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 weapon story things that I unlocked that I, I was saving for once I got to this point of the game. It's like, but yeah, I mean, I want to help them. I'm not a fucking monster. Like, I've lost, like, two people's save data in this fucking ending credit sequence. I Like, what kind of monster would I be if I didn't put my data up there? And he's like, you worked... This is what was my favorite part. He says, you worked so hard to unlock the mission select mode and the debug mode. If you do this, you will not have those anymore. Are you sure? And I'm like, motherfucker, yes, just take it from me. Just fucking do it. And then you get that fucking screen where you go to the options screen and it goes through your menu and just deletes everything one by one. And it's like you see all of your side quests and it's like, oh, there's all those side quests I didn't finish. But they're gone. Like, here's all these weapons I worked so hard to fucking get all these upgrade materials. It's like, they're gone. I'm not going to fucking read those weapon stories now, I guess. And it's like goes through and deletes everything and uploads that data into the cloud so that some somebody somewhere someday is going to use that that data or whatever with the, the context of the ending to to you know triumph in the end over the the villainous Square Enix PR team and and see a better future and like that is the moment where after that and then it just drops you back out to the top of the game 
like the the the, the pause screen like it even it even reset my y-axis thing to default like it went so far i had to reset that back to fucking inverted and i started playing the game again just to see like just because like i was like there's no like like does something like because i mean that's what the ending of the game is is like there's some chance somewhere someday that there is a brighter future for these characters and it's like leading you into the like cycle that's not a literal cycle like i don't think you're supposed to literally think like oh like all those uh, like billions of pieces somehow pascal came back somehow and had all those memories like but it is a metaphorical cycle of starting the game again and experience the story again and so then that's where you get the beginning line from 2b which is again you you just got a new version of it with pod 153 which is Everything that lives is designed to end. We are perpetually trapped in a never-ending spiral of life and death. Is this a curse or some kind of punishment? I often think about the god that blessed us with this cryptic puzzle and wonder if we'll ever have the chance to kill him. Yep. Yeah. Which, which I also, although I do have to, to note that the, the Japanese version of that line does, like, it's not explicitly kill them. It's more specific. Like, it's, it's the line uh, Yumio Hiku, which means to draw your bow, which is more like generally like to defy god. But like, uh, but it is, it's a really unbelievable fucking ending of that game that I think just it, it uses it, it it uses the form and the mode of video games to just like blow the doors open and and it like it one it breaks the fourth wall in a way that like if you have never and this is like like the whole thing for me about um, near Automata is it made me realize like. Video games are not like movies. If there's anything that video games, any other mode or like genre or like like medium of, of art or narrative that video games are most closely acquainted to, it's live theater. Um, because you have this like uniqueness of experience, this live experience with this thing that is personal and immediate and responsive to you in a way that only live theater is. And if you haven't seen a lot of Shakespeare live performed, like I think it like like performed well live. Like, like, Nier Automata honestly has, like, a very similar quality to it of that, like, it breaking the fourth wall to you in the way that some Shakespeare plays effectively break the fourth wall. Of the, like, you know, there's the famous speech from The Tempest where he talks about, like, our whole globe or whatever there's a theater, all that shit. Um, like, movies, TV shows, books can't break the fourth wall. It's not possible. Like, they can emulate the process of breaking the fourth wall, but you can't break the fourth wall unless you can or interact with whatever's on the other side of that fourth wall, right? A movie can't interact with you, the audience, because a movie is a scripted, contained, controlled, physical thing that exists and always will be that thing. And, and if you play a movie in an empty room, it breaks the fourth wall in the exact same way that if you played a movie with a live, with like a huge theater audience, that movie has no ability to, to adapt to that experience. But a video game does, and, and live theater does. And the way that... That experience and my relationship to that ending is so specific to how I experienced it and, and the, the different names and messages I saw along the way. The message I put out there, which was also, I forget what the whole thing was, but I remember specifically because it was right after seeing the episode of Twin Peaks with the apple pie. So that was the frame, that was the context, that was the frame of mind I was in, was I had just seen that episode. So I ended my like hopeful message with, I'm in your corner, which is what Battling Bud says to, yep. to Coop before he gets into the car. And so it's like, but and that whole experience is so personal and fresh and unique to me. And, and the messages I saw, the people in there, the people I connected with over the network directly or not, like that human experience and that social experience of connecting with these other people, experiencing this thing with me as it is, as it is engaging with us 
is so incredibly powerful that like I was almost brought to tears just by the sheer humanity of what was happening and this real sense of human connectedness, even when it was so distant. Even just that sense of like, like this is not just something that's stupid, right? Like this is something you care about and them asking you those questions and knowing that every other person that is doing this thing like right now or has in the past and uploaded their data has been going through the same process and giving these answers and is like standing there with me symbolically in this process is just something that no other medium can really do. And I think, you know, it's just incredible. Talking about the live theater connection, you know what it reminds me of in that when we make this comparison is Peter Pan was originally written by J.M. Barry for the stage, not as a novel. Right. And in the stage version of Peter Pan, famously, when Tinkerbell dies in the play, Peter turns to the audience and asks everyone to clap. Right. And only by the audience clapping enough will Tinkerbell come back to life. That's kind of what Nier Automata does. Basically, yeah. Only the, the stage is the game, and the, the, play, the, the people in the audience are not in one room. They're yeah. in and if Tinkerbell got impaled with a sword and screamed to death while she like, slipped in her own blood. Yeah. Which would be a different kind of Peter Pan. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, it is definitely, it is like this really personal, intimate experience. And it's something that like, as the, like a week after I finished Near Automata, I had like, one of the first things I, I did like, was I went to, um, I immediately went and reread Aristotle's Poetics because there's something so powerful to me, I think, about the way that Near Automata understands the form of tragedy and like, and kind of almost revolutionizes it by pulling in this like, when it was normally a like external experience to to tragedy, which is like traditionally is a mode that exists in theater, like that is how it was in ancient Greece. That's like like in Elizabethan times. Like, not to say that there weren't like written stories that could also fit into the genre of tragedy, but generally, classically speaking, it was a staged sort of like a live theater performance is where tragedy comes from. And for those who don't know, Aristotle's Poetics is like the sort of foundational piece of literary criticism in the Western tradition that is mostly about analyzing tragedy because there was a whole other half about comedy that we don't have anymore. And who knows what would have been different if we had that and that it's, was not lost to time. It's probably very funny. Yes, it was probably hilarious. Not that kind of comedy, but yes, it was probably hilarious. But yeah, but, but I think part of the thing about that tragic experience is that you see it with an audience and there's a sense of connectedness of like, I've seen Romeo and Juliet and King Lear performed live and there's something about like those tragedies that's like when you get to the end like you're so like if you've only ever read those stories it's such a or it's seen the movies which the Shakespeare movies are generally not that good like it's hard to sort of just describe like what the like connectedness you can feel towards the characters when it's played well live in front of you by people who are like good Shakespearean actors that have like done this before with like a good setting and like with a, like a group of people that are invested and interested with this thing there is this sense of like that tragedy comes back to life where you know the story of Romeo and Juliet so well, but when you see it in that format, which is so fresh and different for, I think, a modern audience, you really reapproach this idea of, like, fucking God, this sucks. Like, you just want these, like, these poor fucking kids, like, they don't know anything about what they're doing. Of course they've made all these mistakes. And it's like, you don't want them to die. Like, you don't want King Lear to come, like, walking off the, out of the corner of the stage Crating Cordelia in his arms, screaming, howl, howl, howl. That's not how you want that to go. Like, that's the heart of tragedy, as, as Aristotle writes, is that it has to work on pity and fear. 
And it's like you pity these people and you want a better outcome for them. And that's, I think, like Nier Automata taking that experience, that like this, this communal experience of a tragedy of everybody sitting there praying and hoping and wanting for like this one time for like just this one time for this one performance can't like you know Juliet like wake up half a second early and be like what the fuck are you doing Roby you fucking idiot slap the poison out of his hands you you idiot what the fuck are you doing you know you want like like the people to to be able to like get back to Lear and Cordelia like like five seconds earlier right like you just want that outcome to be just that little bit different and this time because it's live it feels like you could just do it, motherfuckers. Like, I get you'd have to improvise it, but you could, if they wanted to, you could right now, straight up, you could just make this a happy ending. And, of course, they never do because that's the point of the tragedy. Yeah. But I think, like, there's something... And the inevitability of it is part of that, right? That exactly. you know it's coming. Yeah, but you're, like, you're sitting there and hoping and praying for it to be, for it to be, different, for it to be different this time. And Nier Automata takes that, that experience of tragedy and incorporates that into, like, the text of the thing itself, which I think is brilliant and an amazing sense of, of like tragic storytelling on top of like the already like really fantastic tragedy of like nine S's story throughout the game is, is like a textbook Greek tragedy in a lot of ways. But then like on top of all of that is it's not just like playing with the tragic form and tragic genre um, in really fascinating ways. It's also using that to tell the core themes of its story because that is the core theme of the story is that dude, life is shit. And every like like they say like all existence all life is designed to end or like what the the, the Japanese line is it's is they use the word hodobiru which is not just to like end it's like to fall into ruin it's like a more kind of like high word because like because those two uh, speeches are in like kind of more theatrical Japanese which they don't quite do in the translation so it's like but it's the sense of of every of life is always going to end it's always going to fall apart it's always going to degrade and devolve into ruination because that is what existence is and we all know that we all recognize that i mean if you're an adult you should understand that is the fate that awaits you and that's why you come up with like religion or whatever it is to sort of like live with that fact or disguise that fact from yourself but we all have to sort of contend with this this implicit understanding that you will die someday that everybody you know will die someday. Everything you care about will die. Like everything you care about will end. Like America will fall. The human race will fall. The planet Earth will be absorbed by the sun and, and be destroyed effectively. Like, like all these things, like the universe will eventually, like all the energy in the universe will disperse to such a point that it is physically impossible for any life to exist anymore. Like all of those things are going to happen. Everything that we understand about existence will someday no longer be And we all have to live with that knowledge and we live with our lives sort of like ignoring that fact and hiding from it. Or you use it to justify pure apathy, which is, I think, where like Nier Automata interrogates that of like, that's kind of where the the hole that 9S falls into is he just, after 2B dies, he stops caring about anything anymore and he just doesn't give a shit. And it's just pure apathy. It's pure rage at the machine and apathy at the world and of ever trying to sort of pick himself up and do something better. And that's like the trap of existentialism is that it invites this attitude of who gives a shit? Like why make a difference? This is something we saw like very powerfully at the most recent election is there is a lot of people that are like, who gives a shit? It doesn't matter. You see, already saw fucking Donald Trump. Like, 
a couple of days ago. And then again today, saying this shit about like, oh, it's bad on all sides. It doesn't matter. Like, like blurting this kind of like apathetic bullshit about how nothing matters. Nothing is important. Everything is bad. Blah, 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 blah. And falling into that hole and using existentialism and using the eventual ruination of everything we care about to justify that. And on the one hand, I totally understand where that comes from. But I think the brilliance of Nier Automata is... It goes through this whole long process, in some ways justifying that philosophy. It demonstrating to you just how true all of those things are, that everything you care about will fall into ruination. This game takes place 10,000 years after the human race is fucking extinct. So it feels like, of course, nothing matters because these aren't even humans. Like, the, our entire race is already gone. And so it has all of that sort of pessimism and sets up that cynicism for you. But then it chooses to end in a very different way. It chooses to end with this statement of a different future also exists. A future is not given to you. It is something you must take for yourself. That even if you know none of the, in a cosmic sense, ultimately none of the shit we are ever going to do is ever going to matter. Really. Like, like the, even the sheer idea of things having value and things mattering is just a pure human construct fucking anyways. So who gives a shit? But at the same time, it's the only thing we have. And you have to keep trying. And you have to try harder. You can't just give up and say, it doesn't matter. Because then what is your life? Then what are you doing? You have to decide for yourself what is the treasure you hold. Where the, the game uses a sort of like phraseology of treasure for the machines of each in the picture book segments segments 9s sort of describes each of the machines has a treasure for some it is beauty for one it is his brother for 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 adam it's his hatred but like that 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 treasure is whatever your your raison d'etre is it's whatever your reason for being is and i think the near automata's message is like your reason for being ultimately should be to help the people that you care about and to just try harder for a better future, even if it's probably impossible, just trying for the better for a future for the next people that come around is is worth it because it's the best thing you can do. So you might as well do it. And I think the way that, that, that this story gets to that point is so amazing, so brilliant and so utterly unique and, and powerful. And again, like basically brought me to tears through the sheer sort of like abstract storytelling and presentation of it alone, not through pity of any specific character, but just the sheer sentiment and the manner in which it was expressing it, like so connected to me on a deeply human level. I think it's, it's an absolute unbelievable achievement. I agree with a lot. Storytelling. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to cut us off within the next five minutes because okay. we have to move on to Twin Peaks, but um, I have been stewing on this for like a month now. And I'm very glad you got, to, I'm glad I got to hear it. I'm glad you got to say it. Um, it's, and it's interesting because I'm not going to go through my whole story with it. Uh, cause I actually agree with a lot of that. Um, I knew Rudy e was shorter, like it was not a full route going into it. Cause I'd kind of looked that up, right. not looked up like the exact details, but I was trying to figure out the, the playtime. Yeah. Kind of. Um, but I was still, there's no way not to be surprised by what happens at the end. And I didn't read it through some of the same lenses. I think you just described, although I think they're all fascinating ways of looking at the game. And I love hearing your whole description of tragedy and those things. Cause it's so true. I very much was struck by how beautifully this is a postmodern work. Like, right, yeah. And, you know, you mentioned a few weeks ago on the podcast that this is like, this is the game Kojima has always wanted to make but never quite has. I don't want to say never quite could. I think he could. Just he, he, yes, he can. Like, he yeah. just needs a good editor. Yeah, basically. Um, but, like, and I agree because this game at the end, what it does is in imagining the video game medium as something so powerfully malleable is fascinating to me. Yeah. That form, function, all these basic things that you look at in any kind of art, 
it's imagining video games as something unshackled from all those ideas. That, like, the climax of 9S's story is this little visual novel that is such a beautiful moment where Adam, basically his dead consciousness, invites him to come live on this thing on the moon that he might or might not make it to and just this kind of pool of consciousnesses. And had the game ended there, I think it would have been brilliant. You know, it's yeah. a great, beautiful, sad note to end on of redemption, sort of, but not quite. Right. But also, like, so many things haven't been answered. So many questions are still out there. What is the ultimate ending we're going to see here? And the ultimate ending is, yeah, this is probably all going to come to shit, but it doesn't have to. And this whole conversation between the two pods, 042 and 153, because you hear those numbers a lot. Yes. Um, talking about, like, like, what could we do to make a different outcome? What could we do to change this? And what it's saying is, well, this is a video game. The live theater thing aside, which I think is very yeah. true... It is ultimately a planned experience. Like, it is this built sure, thing. Yeah. Like, it, so much of the game is this meta, meta thing of the, the characters in the game are also like cogs in their machine, which also has five other different existentialist philosophical implications. Right, yeah. But, like, yeah, the only way to really change this would be to blow the whole fucking thing up. And then it just invites you, like, here's your little Galaga gun. Blow it up. Right. And then building into everything you described of like, you realize it's an impossible task. Like, it's literally Sisyphean that you can try. And I did it, tried it so many times. And it took me a while to realize the help it was offering was like, I had to do it. I denied it a couple times. Sure, yeah. And then I realized, okay, it's literally impossible. Because I had been pretty bad at the hacking stuff, the period. There's some really hard parts at it. And I just thought, like, I'm not playing it well enough. But it's like, no, you, literally, you can't do it. And so then, like, realizing that and realizing then what it's going above and beyond saying about the video game medium and asking you like to me what hit me so hard is the game at the end feels like an affirmation of why we play video games which is that you know you're not going to literally change the outcome all of these things but do you think games are silly things no do you think this journey had meaning yes do you want to keep trying yes and it's like no matter how hard how Sisyphean that feels you just want to keep pushing that boulder up the metaphorical hill. Yeah. And yeah, I think to me it's just something so powerful about the medium itself while saying 5,000 other kind of larger philosophical things as well. Yeah. And it works on so many different levels. And it really, it, it's a very open book at the end that it is asking you to write things into. Yeah. And it's just one other thing that I love about it that I think is something that Western game developers have so taken for granted and we've seen over the past few years, ever since around when Demon's Souls came out, there have been like these Japanese developers that have come up that are using like the internet and the like that sort of like network and that ability to connect players in different ways. It's so much more interestingly than than most Western developers just like go like multiplayer mode and that's it and then like you know demon souls is like oh like what if we left these messages on the ground where players can leave hints to like these like really difficult traps that are in the way and like like connect in that way and then like i think gravity rush 2 has a bunch of really interesting network stuff about like the pictures and all this and feeling like you are somehow connected to the other people playing this game even when it's a purely single player experience is really valuable and interesting and compelling to me i think near automata is like the 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 biggest example of that because it also has like the clear demon souls thing of like the bodies on the ground with like they have their own little message that you can take some of their stuff but then it has this much bigger moment at the end almost like like journey is is one of the few western games that kind of does something interesting with the network stuff of of really even again like it could all have been a lie as far as i know like who knows if like that could have just been a bunch of random names that they made up i have no idea if i was actually connected to anyone but even just like using that understanding that these things are connected to the internet and that there are 
two million people that have played this game or are in the process of playing this game right now and we all are together in this experience of this one game and this one story that I think if you have played this game and like taken it seriously like this story is going to affect you one way or the other right like it is it is an mm-hmm. intense thing like there is a real community and kinship in that even when you're the only other person in my like personal life I know who's played this game and, and there's something really powerful and valuable and again I feel like deeply human about that experience of just like giving that sense of connectedness to something much larger that that is real and physical and actual people in the world absolutely so I'm sure we will talk about Nier Automata again. Yes. Obviously we will. Yeah. But let's cut it off for now because we have to talk about Twin Peaks. And this is not a simple episode to break down. No, there's a lot to go through. All right. So, Sean, Twin Peaks Part 14. We're getting there. So, I know. Subtitled on the Showtime site, We Are Like the Dreamer, which is a perfect title for this episode. Yeah. Uh, Spoilers from this point out. I think Part 14, for me, it goes with Part 3 and Part 8 as the best three hours of the show. And this one didn't even have any new footage of Kyle MacLachlan in it. Exactly. It yeah. had enough archival footage that they still credited him because they contractually have to. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Holy hell, Sean. Yeah, no, it is. I, I agree with you. It is one of the best episodes. Like, it is It is definitely one of those things of where it feels like it's part of the pacing of Twin Peaks The Return is this, like, you kind of, like, set people up with, like, like stuff that is still, like, as we talk about every single week. Like, it's really great and compelling and interesting. But it's also, like slowly building all these pieces and then you get to an episode like episode three after the pilots or episode eight after all the stuff between episode three and eight or then now after all the stuff between episode eight and 14 it's built all this stuff up and then it's like okay now we're gonna go fucking nuts with it and this episode goes fucking nuts with it in ways that are amazing and strange and 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 really compelling and i have never at any point in the run felt more confident that they are going to hit the uh, the ending perfectly oh, absolutely. than i did in this one because this episode is so full of payoff uh-huh. and it's it's setting up things too in some ways but the payoff it gives you is so powerful and palpable and it is an episode about dreams and visions and unrealities mixing with realities and about all of monica bellucci about monica god it's so good it's, it's also an episode with actually very few locations. It's very focused. Again, we don't even... Well, we get to Vegas a little bit, but we don't get to Dougie. Yeah. We don't get to Evil Coop even. Um, but man, is this a hell of an episode. So we begin in Buckhorn, South Dakota. I, mean, I appreciate that language, Jonathan. Again, I just have to imagine they chose this town because David Lynch thinks the name is funny. Yeah. Anyway, Gordon Cole's on the phone. He calls Lucy... At the Twin Peaks yes. Department. Which is so crazy that this episode just sort of nonchalantly opens with like, oh, these two parts of the show that have been connected this whole season, or disconnected this whole season, are all of a sudden like crossing paths very yeah. suddenly. Oh, he does it so nonchalantly. She, he, Cole just says to Lucy, you've been there through all the years, Lucy. And she, she's, Kimmy Robertson is so great. Actually, I have gone home and Andy and I have taken some vacations. One year we went to Bora Bora. And then Lynch just holds on his own face because Gordon Cole is very confused yeah. by Lucy. But anyway, returning Sheriff Truman's call. Didn't know it was Frank Truman, which I think is an interesting detail. And uh, says that something's been found. Uh, that He does talk to Frank uh, in the next scene and indicates that, uh, or says Laura's diary, which they found, has indicated two Coopers. So that's what Frank is telling Gordon Cole. And uh, then Gordon Cole has the great line, Thank you very much, Frank. Although I can't comment on this information, I want you to know I really appreciate it. And for the first time, like in Twin Peaks history, someone seems slightly taken aback by Gordon Cole. And that's just slightly, Frank Truman is like a little bit like, this guy's a little off. Yeah. (laughs) Which I love. It's just, 
Oh man, I love it. But anyway, uh, that's a good scene. Just getting yes. some of that. So. And just just setting that little bit in place mm-hmm. that now the FBI know for sure that there's something there's. They they had an inkling that was something weird going on with Dark Coop, but now they have a path to sort of navigate that with this idea of two Coopers. Yeah, so there's a lot of exchanges of information in this episode. There's yeah. a lot of people being made aware of things, including in this next scene, the audience. Yeah. So let's talk about the next scene, which is Albert and Tammy. Yeah. Uh, they're in their hotel room. Albert is telling Tammy the history of the Blue Rose. I love this whole piece of exposition. It's that yeah. in 1975, two agents in Olympia, Washington, um, went to look up a suspect named Lois Duffy. And when they found her, there were two women in the room, one dead, one holding a gun, and both women are Lois Duffy. Yeah. And Lois Duffy on the ground, dying, says, I'm like the Blue Rose, then dies, the other woman screaming, also Lois Duffy. And as Albert helpfully tells us, she did not have a twin sister. He says, by the way, she didn't have a twin sister. Um, Anyway. I would not put it past Twin Peaks. Lois hangs herself while awaiting trial. And here's the kicker. The two arresting officers were Mr. Gordon Cole himself and Philip Jeffries. Yes, he's a name we've been hearing a lot in Twin Peaks The Return, but we have not seen him for yes. sad reasons. But uh, That was a cool scene. Yes. That, like, that bit of exposition is so interesting and exciting and clearly like, this has all happened before. This is yeah. all happening again. Like, because this echoes not just obviously Evil Coop and Good Coop, but like the whole thing with William Hastings, the Matthew Lillard character, yeah. and all this stuff that, that this is clearly some kind of cycle they're working through. Of course, there's this great exchange here where Albert says, now what's the one question you should ask me? And Tammy says, what's the significance of the Blue Rose? And the answer, she thinks, a Blue Rose does not occur in nature. It's not a natural thing. The dying woman was not natural. Conjured. What's the word? I had to look up the subtitles for this. Yeah. A tulpa. Yes. So, by the way... Except for mysticism. Yes, very interesting. By the way, this is when I had to turn the captions on, and I left them on, because if you are not watching Twin Peaks The Return with captions, you are missing something. Okay. Because the captions describing, like, faint electrical humming, you get a ton of that. Or, like, ominous music. It's so wonderful. I incorporated so much of it into my notes this week. I'm sad I had not been using them before. Nice. But anyway, like, do it for one episode. It's fun. Anyway... So yeah, that is an interesting piece of exposition. I like how much, and we'll get more of this in a little bit, Philip Jeffries is central to all this, even though David yeah. Bowie can't be in it. Um, yes. But he can in spirit. Yes, we'll see. Go through there in a little bit. So Gordon Cole comes in after this, and he's got a big thumbs up and says, Coffee time! Which I love. And there's a really weird aside where a window washer is there wiping the windows, which upsets Gordon's hearing aid. It, it like starts as a gag, but it gets really rough. Yeah. And then finally Diane comes in. Deputy Diane reporting. God bless Laura Dern. Um, and then they go over the whole Briggs thing again. And this is where we get a piece of information that caused me to write in my notes in all caps. Oh my fucking God, it is happening. It is happening. It is happening. Two lines of exclamation points. Because yeah. I was so excited. Because what you learn here is, is Albert explains that they found this ring that says, To Dougie with love, Janie E. And Diane goes, oh my god, my sister's name is Jane, my half-sister. She's married to a man named Douglas Jones, but everyone calls him Dougie, and her nickname is Janie E. Holy fuck, Sean! Yeah. It's happening! Uh-huh. And there's this whole scene after this where Cole calls the Vegas FBI, and they learn that, like... Um, basically tells them to look out for Douglas Jones and find him and his wife Janie E, which of course is going to lead back to the police stuff. And we know how this is. I told you it was going to come together last week when they threw the thing in the trash. It's coming together. Oh my God, it's happening. And what is it that the FBI dude says? Says it's like, this is the FBI. This is what we do. He's yelling at someone else in the room. Wilson, how many times have I told you this is what we do in the FBI? (laughs) 
Because the guy says, like, how are we going to find him? Yeah, because they're like, we've got a call from Gordon Cole, the director. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, it's very funny. God, it's so good. But how excited... Okay, so Janie E is Diane's sister. Uh-huh. I mean, I think that makes so much sense of how... Why, why Coop is so attracted to her. You know, they have this sort of, like, weird relationship through Diane now. But, like, this opens up so many weird Freudian doors uh-huh. for Lynch. Like, the whole idea that... Okay, so Dougie was, like, in this whole metaphysical thing, some kind of plant by evil Coop to, like, keep his consciousness alive in the real world, right? Yeah. They went through all that. So he picked Diane's sister... To, like, become the vessel to marry Dougie. It's all so bizarre. Yeah. And now Good Cooper has come out in that form. I just... I love this whole... And, of course, like, this is clearly going to lead all these characters to come together. And I know we've been waiting 14 hours for it. But because Lynch has made us wait so long, I am so excited. It is happening. Even if it takes another couple episodes. These characters are all going to be in a room together. Lynch has very clearly promised us this. I mean, he... We don't know... Like, what their velocity is going to be, but they have been given a vector. Yes. Like, we, they have a direction. They're going to head in that direction at some point. Their velocity is within four hours, because yeah. that's all that's left. Exactly, yes. So, again, I think it's not going to be the fina- until the finale, but it's happening. All right. But then the real wackiness starts. Yeah. After Diane leaves, Gordon Cole talks about his call for, with Agent Truman and what's going on. And then he says, and last night I had another Monica Bellucci dream. Albert says, oh boy, and then, as the captions tell us, ominous music come in. I'm going to read the speech, because I don't know how else to describe it. We we have black and white stuff, it's amazing. I'll skip through some of it. I was in Paris on a case. Monica called and asked me to meet her at a certain cafe. She said she needed to talk to me. When we met at a cafe, Cooper was there, but I couldn't see his face. Monica was very pleasant. She had brought friends. We all had a coffee. And then she said the ancient phrase... We're like the dreamer who dreams and then lives inside the dream. I told her I understood. And then she said, but who is the dreamer? A very powerful, uneasy feeling came over me. Monica looked past me and indicated to me to look back at something that was happening there. I turned and looked. I saw myself. I saw myself from long ago in the old Philadelphia offices, listening to Cooper telling me he was worried about a dream he had. I'm going to break there for a second. Yeah. Already, and we're going to get into all the firewalk with me stuff in a second here, but the way this is shot, where we're intercutting with black and white footage of David Lynch and the real Monica Bellucci, who, God bless her heart, real trooper doing this, um, probably in real Paris. I can totally believe Lynch flew over to fucking Paris and shot a scene with Monica Bellucci. It could have been a back lot, but who knows. And they're having their coffee, and every time we cut back to like the color footage of real Gordon Cole telling the story, it's this super low angle on him up, which I love, like... Lynch has a great way of like studying his own face on film, like a great like a Van Gogh self-portrait. He's uh-huh. really good at it. And I love that. And then you get these dream sequences in black and white, and some of that dialogue is intercut with like Monica Bellucci will say some of it. And it's just the whole thing, it's so such a beautiful production. It also feels to me like this is one of those Rosetta Stone scenes for the David Lynch filmography, which uh-huh. is like 20 years, someone writes a book about David Lynch after he's passed or something. That's going to be one of the scenes we use to interpret everything he ever made is, is how this comes together with the meta stuff with Monica Bellucci and the weird thing that, and the whole statement of the, we're like the dreamer who dreams and then lives inside the dream, but who is the dreamer, which is, that's the question of like every Lynch movie pretty much. Up to and including Dune, I think, pretty well. I, yeah, I mean, I thought I was dreaming when I watched that movie the first time. Pretty much. Just the whole... And it gets into more concrete exposition for Twin Peaks, which is why I stopped where I stopped, and we'll get into that. But, like, that whole scene, 
utterly took my breath away. Yeah, and it also just like it's like it's the reddest. I think you're right. Like it can be used as a Rosetta Stone for like a larger sort of like Lynch discussion because obviously you know dreams is a big theme in his works. Like I think like. It, because this scene also is like the most fucking Mulholland Drive thing ever. <laughs> like that is not just Mulholland Drive. Like it's pretty fucking crazy. But like, but also it is sort of like the key scene in this episode because this uh-huh. whole episode, even though you're not like necessarily in dreams like explicitly anywhere in the rest of this episode, like it has this dreamlike quality. Particularly when we talk about the scene with James uh, later in the episode, like it has this like weird like and not necessarily in the exact same way that Mulholland Drive is dreamlike I don't think it's necessarily using filmic language in the same way to try to make that argument but there's something about like the way that characters are telling these stories in this episode that like really lulls you and puts you into this weird uncomfortable state that is also then like generally followed with or accompanied with as you would say with the the closed captions of like ominous music in some way that just puts you on edge in a way but oftentimes you can't quite pinpoint why you're feeling on edge exactly i you know and and so much of lynch's work is about not like just literal dreams or literal realities but the space in which those two merge and you can't quite tell what is what yeah and i think this one definitely connects to me to another rosetta stone scene for lynch which is this scene in blue velvet where frank takes uh, kyle mclaughlin's character out you know on the joyride basically and then in one moment when kyle mclaughlin talks back at him and he pulls him out of the car and he says, you know, get the candy-colored Sandman, candy-colored Sandman. And they put the song on in Dreams, the Roy Orbison song. Yeah. And Frank is like talking along with it and putting on the makeup. And he says, in Dreams, I am you, you're mine. Like, and he's saying the words of the song and it's coming together. And it's this moment that is real, but it is also a nightmare. It is Kyle MacLachlan's character. Um, God, what's that character's name? Anyway, um, seeing his literal like some part of his id manifested in another man yeah. and that man seeing a repressed part of his id in Kyle MacLachlan and this back and forth and that scene is so much to me like that is the mission statement for so much of what David Lynch has set out to explore on film yeah. and this feels like a full circle kind of reminder of that of course it does transition back into this exposition because now we replay the by far weirdest scene from Firewalk with me yeah that's maybe the most amazing thing about this whole episode is that it makes the most inexplicable scene from Firewalk with me somehow in that moment felt like it made perfect sense like of course that's what that scene was yes that's what that scene must have always been and they've done this a couple of times with things from Firewalk with me in particular yeah where like and I don't know if it's that 25 years later, David Lynch and Mark Frost looked at that and decided to recontextualize some of that, or if these are things that have just been true to them for 25 years. Mark Frost did not work on Firewalk with me, but at least to Lynch. And like this is always something he wanted to expand on, or at least knew in his mind. Because, of course, you're a writer. You know more than about this world than whatever it gets on the page, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, so I don't know which one it is, but it feels utterly seamless, and it really shouldn't. Yeah. And it, like there's, there's also a weird moment when it first cuts to fire walk with me footage where my brain went like did they use like weird cgi on david lynch to make him look young and then then it cut to cooper's like oh wait this is just footage from fire walk with me right it's like i feel like i've been conditioned by this like slate of movies we had over the past couple of years like like kurt russell in gardens of the galaxy this year that's like 
I can't tell anymore if people are the age that they are in movies. <laughs> it's it's like, just it's a weird problem to have, yeah. isn't it? But yeah, no, I love... So, yeah, so Cooper's... Because now we're into layers of dreams. Yeah. and Because that whole scene of Firewalk with me, I've always read that in that movie as a dream sequence. Uh-huh. But who knows now. Yeah. Um, but anyway, and, and Cooper says here, Gordon, it's 10, 10 a.m. on February 16th. I was worried about today because of the dream I told you about. Notice the nonsense bullshit numbers again. Yeah. <laughs> Lynch has always loved them. And and Cole continues, and that was the day Philip Jeffries appeared and didn't appear. And then we have the scene from the movie with the great David Bowie. And while Jeffries was apparently there, he raised his arm and pointed at Cooper and asked me. And then we have Bowie saying, who do you think that is there? Yeah. Damn, I hadn't remembered that. Now this is really something interesting to think about. And then Albert says, yes, I'm beginning to remember that too. Hot fucking damn, Sean. Yeah. This so, is also the first time we have seen Dale Cooper as Dale Cooper proper in all of Twin Peaks The Return is in stock footage from Firewalk With Me. And it was kind of shocking to be like, right, right, that's yeah. who that guy is. That's the, who he was. The closest would be like him in the Red Room, but he doesn't yeah. say anything. And he's kind of a spirit version of himself. But yeah, we haven't even cut to archival footage of him. So that's, a, yeah, you're right. Um, what a scene, though. Like, Because now we have some more tangible things to go on here where like... Clearly, like, there's this whole idea of, like, Cooper's possession being broken out of time. Like, it's not a linear thing. Mm -hmm. So, like, you have the idea of Philip Jeffries, like, warning about it there. And maybe Cooper having a premonition. And, again, this, what, where, when I think this might be something that has just been rattling around inside of Lynch and Frost forever, it's because in the deleted scenes from Firewalk With Me, which, if you haven't seen, you should, because they're amazing. they're basically another movie. (laughs) Yeah, they are, and they're very good. Um... They're going to be on the Criterion release, too, if you don't have a version of that movie. So, um, But the last one is there's a scene following up on the end of Twin Peaks, the TV series, where the Heather Graham character, Annie right. Blackburn, wakes up and says the lines about Cooper's in the Black Lodge, which in her time is chronologically accurate, but somehow we know Laura Palmer has heard this in the past. Yeah. So we know Lynch already has this viewpoint of all these things from across time can kind of meld together. And I want to talk about that a little bit because I've noticed, like, because of that and some other things going on, some people on Twitter have been saying, isn't it a little ridiculous that Lynch is referencing things from his own deleted scenes? Like, how can you expect someone to say that? And I think that's the wrong way to view it. Yeah. None of the things that are quote-unquote references to deleted scenes I think are meant as, like, references. Like, like that you're supposed to see, like, oh, that, that's a reference to that deleted scene. Yeah, that if you didn't know what it was referencing, you wouldn't be able to understand no, it. No, I, I don't think it's that kind of thing. It's that these are things that were deleted, they didn't use, and now they're bringing them back and recontextualizing them. Yeah. And that, to me, that's just, that happens all the time. You know? Yeah, like, like, like if, if those deleted scenes had never been out there, like, they, would, they could present this information the exact same way and nobody would bat an eye because it would just right. be like, oh, this is just new information that they're using to recontextualize stuff that yeah. happened before. Like, we just are exposed to the fact that they had this idea in the 90s because we saw the deleted scenes. And the deleted scenes, like, for us, critically gives us more of a vision into Lynch's mind, just in terms of, like, okay, what did he shoot then? What did he leave on the cutting room floor? Etc. Like, you know, I think... And definitely those deleted scenes have helped inform my view of some characters, like Bobby especially, because he is such a presence in those scenes. But, no, I don't think you, like... I don't think Lynch is saying you have to have seen the obscure deleted scenes that were caught up in French financing for 25 years and weren't made available until the Blu-ray in 2014. Yeah. Even no. Lynch isn't that crazy. Yeah. Anyway. But, yeah. These scenes, man. So good. It's just, just amazing. Like, it's just mind-bending stuff at some point. Be like, what the fuck? Like, because, again, it is that, like, dream within a dream idea. It's also something that, like, to talk about with this episode of just, like, the idea... 
that's, that's obviously always been here with, with Good Coop and Evil Coop. But I think we're getting deeper into this idea of people having doppelgangers now. Yeah. That's like, that's such a, like, that that's such like an English major, like, doppelganger in something. Like, like pull out the Freud, pull out all this stuff. Like, let's talk about it. Absolutely. So, uh, we then go to the sheriff's department for a quick scene where Bobby has brought sandwiches for everyone from the Double R Diner. I like that they've developed all this, like, Double R to go logos and stuff yeah. for the production. The, that's one thing we haven't talked about enough, how good the production design on this show is. Just cons- and Lynch has always had it. Um, he works with the great, um, I forget his name. It's also the production designer for um, uh, uh, Terrence Malick. But I don't know if he worked on this or not. But the great production design. Anyway, this is the scene where they bring in Shad, the evil cop, and arrest him. Uh, or the douchebag cop. I wouldn't call him evil. He's just a douchebag who has done bad things. Right, the dirty cop. The dirty cop. And they arrest him. And, and one of them says, we've been watching you for months. Take his badge and lock him up. I think that's Robert Forster says yeah. that, and I love it. And then um, Bobby says, there's your roast beef and cheese for Robert Forster. Which I just love that, like, Lynch and Frost probably had a whole conversation about what would Sheriff Frank Truman order for his sandwich? Yeah. Roast beef and cheese? I believe it. I believe Sheriff Frank Truman would order that. I also think his, like, one of the sandwiches, because it's Bobby's, like, laying out all the sandwiches he got in the last one. It's like, just cheese. It's <laughs> right, like, the joke. Who ordered just a cheese sandwich? And we never find out. Yeah. Anyway. It was Andy. Next week. It was week, definitely Andy. <laughs> it was almost certainly Andy, who gets a fucking scene. Yeah, he does, yeah. Uh, I wrote. For the next cut, wind whooshes over the pines of Twin Peaks, shrouded in fog. An amazing aerial shot, which pans down into the fog. The team drives down a forest road and get out on the side near some trees. On the captions, faint electrical scratching. Bobby leads a group of four, Bobby, Frank, Hawk, and Andy, as they go into the forest. Lynch holds on their emptiness for a moment after they disappear. Then they are traveling, hiking through the foliage, a Malick-esque shot from below of the trees on high, spinning slowly, light breaking through. They cross a river. Andy lags behind a bit. Soft atmospheric music on the captions, which is so true. More Malik shots, those kind of tree shots where you have light breaking through. It's a very traditional, or it's a, it's a shot I think of in terms of Terrence Malick. He does that a lot. Uh, then back to the group. They're on what used to be the road where Bobby's father used to work. All gone now. Bobby doesn't really know what his father did, just that there were lots of machines. So what I read there was just a, an attempt to kind of describe yeah. this sequence of shots, which is, I think, some of the most amazing filmmaking in Lynch's career, and certainly some of the most amazing filmmaking that's ever aired on American television. The way he conveys this journey through this series of... Uh, and when I mention those Malick-esque shots, it's because I, they're not all that typical of David Lynch. His photography is actually very rarely yeah. outwardly flashy. But that idea of like the moving camera and the light breaking through onto the lens and the trees, you know, refracting the light and all this stuff, they're absolutely beautiful and haunting. And the way he, you know, conveys this large journey by usually he'll have a cut to the trees and then the group walking in a still shot and then back to the forest and then back to the group and this interchange between nature and our characters until they get to their destination. Utterly stunning. Yeah. And it just, it builds this sense of sort of foreboding it's like a classic american tradition of moving into the wilderness and like as you move through the wilderness you are like transported to something older like primal mysterious and and that is definitely what starts happening in the scene but it's like in you come across that they they end up at the jackrabbit's palace which is just like a a big old tree stump there And, and you can see that like in bobby's mind like he still sees it as he did when he was a kid kind of yep. thing the the camera even comes in and does this disembodied like pan up on yeah. to the t- stump like resting on the top of it and bobby says you know we'd sit here and make up great tall tales 
Hawk reminds them they must go 253 yards due east. And Andy reminds everyone they have to put some soil in their pockets. Frank hopes it's not another tall tale. Bobby says father told him never to wander around here without him. The whole scene is so great. Yeah. You used the word foreboding er- er- earlier, which is great because the next caption was foreboding atmospheric music. Well, there you go. Whoever's doing very, these captions knows their shit. It's very descriptive. It's good because now we have that disembodied camera. And the camera gets more... When I see disembodied, it's like it feels like... It doesn't feel like it's just on a track or it doesn't feel like it's just handheld yeah. because it's very still in its image, but it's still it's moving with like this apparition-like quality. High through the trees... Love this stuff. And then finally they come to this clearing filled with fog and electrical crackling on the captions. Um, and this just feels like a, 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 almost like a universal horror movie scene filtered yeah. through Lynch's mind. Like, like if it was shot in black and white, it would look like a shot from Frankenstein with yeah. the fog. Because you have this body inside the fog. It's naked. That's all we can tell. The fog dissipates as they enter. This is the woman with no eyes, just scars. Who, if I'm not mistaken, we've seen at some point uh, episode in episode three. three yeah, right? she was the woman in the weird boiler room. I think. Yep, that's what I thought. So she's there. She's trying to talk. No sound. The captions very helpfully describe this as odd chattering. I would uh, describe it as chirping, personally. Yeah, but they say that later. Okay. Don't worry. Um, there's so, and then there's this rock in the middle of the clearing with like this weird substance in it, like an, a cauldron of earth, like bubbling. Yeah. Some we never find out what it is. Everyone's very confused. And then someone says, "It's two fifty-three, fellas." The electrical crackling sound grows, and then a portal opens in the trees, like we saw with Gordon Cole and Albert a few weeks ago. They're all entranced. The trees spin into darkness. And we wind up falling on Andy as particularly taken. He's gripping the woman's hand because, you know, he's the empathetic guy. And then he has to put it down, stand up. And then in a jump cut, like an old-school fucking jump cut, yep. he just disappears. I lo- Like, Lynch could clearly afford... Something more complex if he yeah, wanted. Yeah, like a weird special like CGI effect or something of him like dissolving. Right. But he doesn't want that. He wants like in one moment of reality he's there and in one moment he's literally gone. Yeah, like you could just like put a like pop sound effect there and it would fit yeah. right in. And then he is in the Giant's Palace from episode 8 that we saw. Yeah. Which is also where uh, Cooper started in literally the first scene of the whole revival. Yeah. Someone pointed out on Twitter that they think this might be, you know, metaphorically speaking or literally the White Lodge. That was talked about a lot in original Twin Peaks, and I hadn't sure. I hadn't thought in those terms, but I like that idea. Like literally, there's a lot of white in it, but the idea of this being that place, kind of on high, seeing everything, where the goodness is kind of created and the badness is kind of studied. I like that this is the idea. Like maybe this is the White Lodge, the Black Lodge that we see, but they're connected. Like that's yeah. another thing that through all of the episode eight, in particular, but also episode three, that that space between them is not. It's sort of like two places on Earth. They exist in the same plane of existence. Yeah. So anyway, I just thought that was interesting. Andy is sitting in the chair opposite the giant. Although now I guess we have to call the giant the fireman. Because that's how he introduces himself. We've got all our backwards talking. Um, The giant raises his right hand. Puts it down with a faint whoosh on the captions. Suddenly Andy is holding something. And then there's this weird shot where smoke is collecting around him. But it's all backwards shot. It's like the smoke, after it has dissipated, coming back together... And then it whooshes up into a window above him. And Andy looks up blinking. The camera zooms into the white window. And a ghostly figure appears. And then we start re-seeing images from episode 8. We see Bob being born from the ghost vomit. The scene at the convenience store. The dirty bearded men. Yeah. Got a light. Andy sees all of it. Like it's being downloaded into him Matrix style. Exactly. 
And then there's new stuff. Driving down a road, looking up at electrical power lines. And then there's a girl running at school. It's Laura Palmer. It's from Firewalk With Me again. Her picture with, like, cheesy angels from a Hallmark card next to her. I think that was the angel. Like, it looked like it was supposed to be the angel from the end of Firewalk With Me. Yeah. yeah. Which is very intentionally, like, this cheesy kind of yeah. thing. Um, and then there's red curtains and the body from the clearing with no eyes. And then you get what might be the only new footage of Kyle MacLachlan. I, I don't know when this was shot. An image of Cooper and Evil Cooper. First they're blended, then they get separated. A phone rings distantly. There's ominous rumbling as, in a scene we have not seen before, Andy guides Lucy somewhere in the police station. Which I wonder what that's going to lead yeah. to. And then we're back to the woman in the clearing. Low distorted groans. And then an image that is black and white but turns into color of the number six on a pole... My only association there was that looked like the RV lot that we've been seeing a lot with yeah. the, um, what's the actor's name? Um, Harry Dean Stanton? Harry Dean Stanton character, yeah. And that almost looks like, is that maybe Becky's spot at the RV lot? Like someone we know from that side of town? Sure. I could be wrong. That's just where, that looked like what it might be to me. But those are all the series of images he gets. The smoke goes back into the object Andy holds. He starts breathing really quickly like the footage has been sped up, and then he disappears. So, what do you make of that scene, Sean? Well, Andy knows a whole lot of shit now because that's also like in the next scene you see he comes out of this experience yep. where like driven and with a purpose the like of which we have never seen the fine officer Andy uh, have in this series. And it does just like, one, it is really kind of mind-bending to see another character in in that sort of like setting other than Cooper. Which yeah. Obviously like this this specific setting has not existed until Twin Peaks The Return. Like you said, it was the, the first... Uh, scene we saw was Cooper in this kind of room with the fireman now um, but it is weird to see like Andy of all characters although like it's one of those things where you wouldn't think to do it but then when you see it, it's like of course Andy's the one yes. who gets sucked in here it's not Hawk or Bobby or, or the sheriff it's Andy has got to be the one with like the most he's got the most open heart yep. so he has to be the one to receive all this information and be sent on this this mission by the fireman yeah and just this whole scene, again, in terms of... Oh, let's finish it really quick. Because we go yeah. back to Jackrabbit's... Um, what's it called? Jackrabbit's Jack Palace. Palace. And there's this beautiful, long, uh, Brackage-esque shot, Darren-esque shot, where you have images of the other three characters moving around, but they're transparent, like superimposed over emptiness. And they're all confused. And then Andy appears solid, holding the woman, and says, we need to get her down the mountain. She's very important, and people want her dead. So and he explains, we have to put her in a cell, keep her safe... And the other guys, um, Frank and Hawk and Bobby, don't remember what happened. So that's all interesting. Yeah. But, okay, we've been building up to this. That's, they're going to go look for basically an op- a portal into this other world. Or we knew that. They did. Yeah. For weeks now. And I don't think anyone knew exactly what would happen. But I could not have predicted that. No, yeah. Nor could I have predicted just how satisfying it would feel. Because it's not like we got any concrete, quote-unquote, answers to anything. Whatever that means or matters. But like it does feel like so satisfying that it was it was Andy being basically awoken to all this information the audience has had before, and now he's bringing that purpose with him into the real world. And you know, there's a lot of that in this episode. There's a yeah. lot of characters. We saw that with the previous scene with Gordon Cole and everyone being made aware of things that we knew, or they make us aware of things that we didn't know. But it's a lot of people like learning things. Like this whole episode, in some ways, is almost like the weirdest treatise possible on the concept of exposition. Sure, you yeah. know, um, and it's so beautifully done. And that whole trance scene with Andy, even though we've actually seen some of it before in Part Eight, it is so powerful. Yeah, and it is again like going back to the the dream stuff from the top of the episode. Is another instance of this just very. 
dreamlike scene. It's particularly it's the detail that the other people who went with them, like Hawk and everyone, don't remember any of it in this way of like for them it was basically a dream. Like they woke up from it and have no ability to recollect what happened. Yeah. And, you know, this is also such a long set, like, uh, sequence of the episode. We don't actually have that much left, because the next scene is still with these characters. It's in the sheriff's department at night, in the cell. Lucy is giving the weird woman some pajamas. Uh, she says, they've been in my locker since the time that dog got lost in here. We don't learn any more about that. Andy and Lucy have this very tender conversation while the woman makes more weird sounds. And I love that Lucy is so nonplussed by this, which... On one level makes no sense, and on one level makes perfect sense. Yeah. So, that's all interesting. And then we get a very horrific scene where Chad is alone with the weird woman, and then a new guy we have not met, who has a bleeding face wound, and is just pouring out, like, the grossest gunk from his face. Almost looks like tobacco spit, but grosser. Yeah, because you have that shot at the end of the scene where it pans down, and you just see it piling out. And it's not, yeah, it's not just blood, it's just, like... Gross bodily, bleh. and over the course of the scene, they're they're as the the captions keep telling us, both chattering, and Chad is getting angrier and angrier. And then he just starts doing it with them, and that is just a pure horror scene, and yeah. it's fucked up. And I don't know where it's going, but it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's also just something to talk about just how unsettling the the blind woman, like blind, yeah. if blind is the word to use for having yeah. folds of flesh fused over your eyeballs. I don't know if that's blind. I'm just going to say blind. Are you blind if you never had eyes? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if she never had eyes. She fucking knows why it happened to this this weird apparition thing. But, yeah, like, she is just such an unsettling presence. The weird effect they put on her voice. Where it sounds to me like, like I have no idea what sort of, like, actual sound effect process. But it, like, sounds like monkeys. Like, it sounds like a howler monkey or something. Like, the weird chirping noises she makes. It's just, like, really, with, like, weird distortion on it. It's very unsettling so that yeah once you have this like guy in the drunk tank with his like bleeding facial wound echoing it and then just driving dirty cop crazy it's a just a it's a nightmare like it's just like it's It's just a a nightmare come to life yep and uh bleeding face wound guy we will learn more about later yeah (laughs) surprisingly soon yeah and then uh we get our third story of the evening which is at the great northern at night there are two security guards working and one of them is james yep who, hey, we saw in episode one slash two, didn't see again until last week, and now he gets a big scene. Yep. And kind of one of the marquee scenes of The Return in some ways, because this is our third dream sequence, but this one is told. Yeah. Orally. And it's a really interesting scene, because it's this, I'm not going to read the whole thing or anything, but it's this long scene where um, James, who, uh, the kid always calls Jimmy in here, which I think is funny. Yeah. Uh, and the kid is named Freddie. He's like this young British dude, and it's his 23rd birthday. And he has, he's trying to crack nuts with a gloved hand. I, at first I thought he had like a fake hand or something. It was hard to tell what was going on. At first I thought he was like picking up like cotton swabs or something. Because like you just have the scene of him hold like picking it up with this green gloved hand. And yeah. just these like spherical objects and they just smash into dust. Yeah. You're like, what the fuck? Like, because they kind of look like walnuts or something. It's like, but there's no, you can't yeah. just crush a walnut. But then he starts telling a story of why he can crush a walnut. Yep. So finally, James kind of gets him to tell the story of why he can't uh, take this glove off and all that. And it's this long story of when he was drunk one night, that is at the pub, and he left, and then he got this vision of that he should be helping people. However, that connects to the next scene, I don't know, because he says he saw a high stack of boxes, jumped on it for fun, and then he was sucked up into this massive vortex in the air, basically describing what Gordon Cole and now Andy have both seen. 
and he was floating, and there was this bloke there who called himself the Fireman. So no, no uh, coincidence, this is all in the yeah. same episode. And he is told to go to a hardware store near his flat to buy the one right-handed glove inside a like empty package. And he has to fight the guy, Mr. Jobsworth, he has this whole like, thing about. Um, he has to fight the guy to get it. Um, Freddie has the line here, I fear I've snapped his Gregory. Which I think yeah. means snapped his neck. Uh-huh. He's a weird bridge dude, I don't know. Um, and then remembers one other thing the fireman told him. Once you've got the glove on, go to Twin Peaks, Washington, USA. And there you will find your destiny. And uh, as Jimmy, or as Freddie, uh, yeah, as James says, wow, thank you, Freddie. That's a great story. Yeah. If you don't quite know if James believes it or not, like it's, he doesn't, it's, he doesn't give you that information. I think he believes it, though. I, well, here's the thing, and I want to talk about this with the scene, is that there's a fascinating story here. There's a lot of exposition. We're, we're, we're being confirmed about a lot of things, that like the fireman has appeared to other people, that other parts of the world are seeing these portals, that like there is some master plan to bring everyone to Twin Peaks. Like There's so much there's plot. There's some British dude with a Hulk hand. Yes, there's, some, there's so much plot stuff going on here. And yet what I found most striking was how this scene is about the act of storytelling, but more importantly about the act of listening. Because Uh this is our first big scene in terms of like a normal sequence with James. And he is not the focal point of it from a narrative sense. And yet the whole scene is on him listening to someone tell a story. And I think, you know, so James Marshall, who plays James, has had three scenes so far on The Return. The first scene where Shelley was there and said he's always been cool. second scene where he sang the song. And now this scene. He says very little in any of those scenes. He said literally no dialogue in the first two, just yeah. the singing, which is a different kind of dialogue. And now here he says very few things. And just I always thought of him as maybe one of the slightly weaker links in the cast in the original series. And yet I think his performance in these three episodes has been really good yeah, in did. terms of just portraying some kind of deep inner life that we have not been privy to. And there's so much of that. And here just like, there, it's a... Un- some actors can do this uniquely well and it's not like a fault if you can't do it it's just some actors can do it uniquely well and that is sitting and listening to someone else talk yeah you know and James Marshall does it really well in this scene we're just studying his face as he listens to this story there's a million things going on and not a one of them needs to be verbalized and I think that's interesting yeah Uh, and he so palpably feels like the James we knew from 25 years ago but he is also a new version of this character. And watching him listen to this absolutely bonkers batshit story. And come out the other side not dismissing it in any way. You know, who knows if he believes it or not. Yeah. But it really does feel like he valued hearing that story. And some part of it resonates with something inside of him. And I found it on that level, again, that is a key Lynchian scene. Yeah, and it's just, it's from like a, a Twin Peaks point of view, it's always fun to see like when we revisit some of these characters like we got the Norma stuff um, a couple of episodes ago and now like like they they hinted at James in, in episode uh, one slash two and we got that awesome scene at the end of the last episode but then this it is interesting to have his big sort of standout scene of like him being a like character in a scene and not just like something that people are observing uh, he's not that active in and yet like you said you feel that character still there because James always had this sort of like sweetness to him of that he always he was a very honest kid that always took people seriously and took himself seriously and like was not like as opposed to Bobby who's like Bobby's like the kind of like joker thing of like you know he kind of like laughs at the world and is big and and loud and, and violent and James is just like like quiet and sweet 
and sort of distant, which is what makes people, I think, think he's cool. But he really is just kind of interested in people and, and wants to, to listen to people and cares about them. And when I say that James Marshall or that performance was a weaker link, I actually think it's less James Marshall's fault than I think other like directors on Twin Peaks didn't know how to use him as well as Lynch did. Because I think if you look at the Lynch-directed episodes of Twin Peaks, James often has really standout scenes. Yeah. Like the pilot, he's great in. The, it's episode two of season two where... Um, which is episode nine overall, is where uh, you have the singing scene with him yeah. and, and the two girls. And, you know, we sadly, one of the biggest memories of James from original Twin Peaks is the horrible arc with him doing, you know, a bad version of Postman Always Rings Twice with the Widow, which is like the worst use of that character. Uh-huh. And, uh, but I, so I think when you stranded him with off stuff, it didn't work. But I do think there was a kernel to that character that was very interesting. And I like that, even though it's been a couple scenes, I feel like that's there in large presence here. Yeah, definitely. So the next scene is at Elk's Point Bar number 9. Outside, Sarah Palmer is walking, smoking. She goes inside the bar slowly, and there's this fascinating scene yeah. where, uh, that I have to admit, recent political events made feel uh, kind of cathartic. Where yes, a, that's a, for it. a dude who is... Definitely a Trump voter. Oh God, yeah. Who um, sits down? All, he's all alone in the corner drinking I mean, a beer. The with man his... in the truck you shirt is yes. the way you can refer to him. Like it's they probably shot this before they would have had any idea of all this stuff, or during in the middle of it or something. But like, it would not have fell off point if he was wearing a "Make America Great Again." Oh hat. yeah, I mean, I feel like you could just like. That's like when they put it out on CG. If if David Lynch wants to like George Lucas this thing, yeah. he just like put that like CG that that hat on there. Yeah, because he just comes up looking menacingly around. He's got that says truck you and comes up to Sarah and starts hitting on her. She says, "Mind your own business." He says, "That's not very polite." And then she, because she's a fucking badass, says, "It wasn't meant to be polite." Would you sit back where you were, please? And then this is where you really get the Trumpy stuff. I'll sit wherever I want. It's a free country. It's a free country. It's a free country. And I'm just like, this fucking asshole. Yeah, it's like, he starts calling. It's amazing how quickly you can create a character that just every single person watching is like, fuck this guy. Yep. And uh, he starts talking about how she's a bull dyke and all this bullshit. Yeah. And then finally she turns to him. Well, she says, he says, you like to eat cunt, huh? And she says, I'll eat you. And then turns to him, pulls her face off. I don't know how else to describe that visual. Yeah. It is not good enough to just say she pulls her face off, but that's what she does. There's like a portal within it, darkness and smoke and a hand, and says, do you really want to fuck with this? And then suddenly she leaps forward, bites his throat out, and he's dead on the ground, but Sarah Palmer clearly remembers none of this. And... The barman comes over. He's like, "Oh my god, this guy's dead!" And and she says, "You know, or I don't know. It's so weird." It says, "What with half? What's with half his neck missing?" Honey, call nine one one. We got a dead one at the bar. And then he's like questioning Sarah, and and she's like, "I had nothing to do with this." And he he can't connect the dots because how could you? Yeah. But then he's like, "You know, we'll see about this." And she says, "Yeah, sure is a mystery, huh?" And Grace Zabriskie haven't praised her enough. She is so good in this. In, the, in every scene she's had, this scene, she is so good in this scene. Um, with some righteous fury yeah. and then some righteous indignation. It's an interesting scene. Yeah, it's, it's because, like, the other thing you can just, like, because when she pulls her face off and there's the hand, but then, like, the most terrifying thing is when, like, the smile comes up. Yes. It's, like, in the, the center of this black void where a mouth would be, but it's just this, like, I mean, it looked like something from an anime, like, honestly, of, like, just, like, this really, like, what the... 
Like, God, that's like, it's just, it's just a kind of image that, like, hits you somewhere, like, deep in you that's like, this is just fucked up. Like, that's just so purely fucked, the image you're showing of this, like, person with their face off, and you could kind of see her weird face, like, on the, from, like, a side angle off to the side, and then a black void where her face should be, and there's just this giant sort of, like, cartoonish grin of, like, pearly white teeth in the middle of the void, and then she shuts her face, rips the dude's throat out with presumably her teeth, although there's no blood or anything on her at all. And but you read that as as her not remembering what happened. I read that as like she is fully aware of what she just okay. did and is just pretending for the sake of like, you know, she needs to draw I, some attention to the fact that there is a dead person in the bar so that she can leave. I would have to watch this scene again. I, I you know, there's nothing concrete there about that. Right. But yeah, I mean, that's how I read it initially because there is this moment where she like snaps back to reality. But yeah, I, I did think a little bit. I wasn't sure what to say in my notes, but like it's it's because she so quickly goes back to sardonic with her voice that that's where I think you can see like yeah she does remember it. But I, I'm interested to see if we see more of this because we've had all these Sarah Palmer scenes that I thought were maybe just little interstitials or something, and I didn't know if if they were going to go well not go anywhere. I shouldn't say that. I think they've already gone to some pretty heavy emotional places. But if they would kind of tie into larger things, and I think even if it's just obliquely, this scene confirms. There's something up more with her than just being a sad widow. Right. You know? And yeah, I mean, it's totally possible she is using those powers fully consciously. So very interesting stuff going on. Yeah, because it's, it's, you know, like we were introduced to the character watching footage of like a nature channel of like lions or something hunting their prey. Boy, that's a good point, yeah. And now she's ripping fucking dudes' throats out with her shadow mouth or whatever. So, so it's there's something, and then you had like the whole weird noise in her apartment when when Hawk was checking on her. So it's like there's definitely it feels like yeah, those were not just like weird odd asides that were building up like a larger tone or sense of theme or something. Like it is, there you definitely get a sense in this episode that that is a larger narrative construction that we are going to have to revisit again. If, that like the events of Twin Peaks have affected a lot of people in that town. They have clearly very much affected Sarah Palmer. Yes. If this show does indeed end with a Lovecraftian fight with a god, as we've said it might, or anime-esque fight with sure, a god, yeah. I think it will come out of Sarah Palmer. <laughs> sure, yeah. Anyway, um, all right, one last scene in the episode at the Roadhouse where two women are having a drink. Um, one is warning the other not to go in that nut place. And there's this whole long scene, and they finally say, have you seen Billy? And I go, hmm, Billy, because that's who Audrey was so yeah. taken with in the last few episodes. And we learn that Billy... Was in the kitchen with me and my mom, one of the women says. Um, Think my uncle was there, I'm not sure. And it's another story that's like a dream. Yeah. And says, you know, at the window we see Billy, jumps over the six-foot fence, runs the back door, sees her through the window, slams in, they're all screaming, blood is coming out of this guy's nose and mouth, hangs his head in the sink, turns and looks at us, and then bolts away like a rabid animal. And so we know, okay, that's the guy in the prison cell, almost certainly. That's Billy. And then we have this whole thing where apparently this woman's mom and Billy had a thing. So I ask myself, is this woman's mom Audrey? And this is Audrey's daughter. Now the woman says, my mom's name is Tina. But the yeah. way she says it and the ominous music makes me think her mom's name isn't Tina. But I don't know. Maybe. I, like, I, there's something like weird about that scene because it's like there's two women talking. And the one, like the, the, the other woman who's, it's not her mom. Like the, the one that's not related to Tina or whoever yeah. Tina might be. She's the one, like, asking about Billy. And there's something about, like, when um, the, the woman reveals, oh, like, 
my mom and and Billy had a thing, and the way that like the 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 girl the woman listening to that like reacts, it almost felt like does does lady have something going with Billy? Also, like there's something like, like there's a lot. Billy is with a lot of guys. Yeah, that's that's kind of like what it felt like to me. Like it's but it is such an opaque scene because it's, it's one yeah. of those like a number of scenes. Although now we're getting like. This is tangentially weirdly connected through this Billy character to um, characters like Audrey that we know more about. But it is another in the long line of scenes where you're at the roadhouse and yeah. you just have these two people talking that you have no idea who they are. And they're just like talking about some weird, crazy, apocalyptic, random shit that's happening to them. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think like, is Billy sort of a new version of those dirty bearded men we've seen before? Maybe. Is he part of that realm? What has affected him? It's all... Very creepy. There are a lot of dots you can connect here, and the question is how much Lynch and Frost want you to connect them. Yeah. Which is, I think, where I'm going with, like, I immediately start connecting the dots to Audrey, and then, yes, you kind of have to pull back and be like, it's maybe more opaque than that. But who knows? There have been a lot of strong connections, yeah. so... Because there's also, because she, at the end of the story, like, the last note you're kind of left with is the woman ruminating in, like, I, I think my uncle was there. I can't yeah. remember if my uncle was there. And that, like, there's something about that that was, like, the most disturbing line of all this, like, why yeah. can't you, re- like, did your uncle get eaten by time? Like, what fucking happened? Like, why, yep. how would you not be able to remember if there was something, again, like, adding to this, like, dreamlike effect of you can't quite remember all the details, but this is supposed to be something that literally physically happened to you. It's... It's so on point. Like, this episode is as focused as any episode of Twin Peaks has been. Because literally every scene we just went through yeah. is on the same theme, just done in a different way. Yeah. And it's all giving us exposition. That's the most interesting thing. When I say, like, a weird treatise on exposition, it is as far as Lynch goes and all his dreamlike stuff. But it, and, and about dreaming and all that. But it is also a heavily expository episode. And I think that blend is purely unique and absolutely magical. Yeah. It, it is... A real talent to be able to make a story that, like, other than the stuff in the forest that we talked a lot about, that's obviously a big part of the episode, there's just more, like, kind of direct action there, but even that culminates in a scene of effective, like, it's wordless exposition, but it's exposition to Andy. This, like, this whole episode is basically people sitting and talking to one another, and yet it is gripping the entire way through. Absolutely. Um, then the episode ends with the Roadhouse presenting Lissy. Who plays her song Wild Wild West I thought it was a wonderful performance And it actually made me go look up her album Which is called Wild Wild West It's very good Did you have Will Smith song on there? No The song we were listening to is called Wild Wild West Someone needs to edit in the Will Smith rap From the end of the movie Wild Wild West At the end of this Twin Peaks That would be the most dreamlike thing of all Lissy's Wild Wild West If you looked at the lyrics And again I had the captions on screen So I was very much into all the dialogue uh, It really feels like the perfect ending to this episode and uh, I love Lynch's taste is so all over the map with music, but I love yeah. it. I've actually been introduced to several artists through this this show, and I've been listening to some of their stuff. So great stuff! I, the way he shoots the concert stuff, I would love him to just go around the country and just shoot indie rock all over the nation and do like a concert movie. He's so good at it. Yeah. Anyway, love all that. And then uh, one notable thing in the credits is here we get in memory of David Bowie. And boy, if that didn't uh, pull at your heartstrings a little bit, you don't have one. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Twin Peaks Part 14. We only have three weeks left, four Stop. hours, but good God was that good. And I can only expect that it's, there's more to come. Yeah, because again, it's something we didn't, we didn't sort of, we, we noted at the top of the discussion, uh, there was no Dougie and no Evil Coop in this episode. Yeah. And I feel like when you get that every once in a while in the show, you have no Dougie, then the next episode, 
usually has a whole lot of Dougie. So, and in this week, uh, we found out the things about Janie E and right. Diane, and they know that, and the LA FBI is or Las Vegas FBI is on the trail for that. So, only exciting things to come with Twin yeah. Peaks: The Return, which has, I think, already cemented itself as one of not just the great things in TV history, but like one of the most fascinating events in filmmaking history. So I am so excited to continue following this journey. Yeah. All right. Next week on the show, we'll talk Sonic Mania. We'll talk Twin Peaks. We'll Lots of other stuff will come up. Um, join our Patreon. We've got Doctor Who episode out. Yeah. We've got five more episodes of Halo coming out this Friday. That is hours of content, and it's very fun and informative. And if you like Halo, you're going to learn some things. So yeah, patreon.com slash weeklystuffpodcast, weeklystuffpodcast.com. YouTube.com. Slash, slash, I'm not going to, I don't yeah. know what it's slash. But the week, put in weekly stuff podcast. Into the, yeah, into the YouTube search bar. You'll, you'll find it. We've got a lot of videos. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. Yeah. I thought I'd like to record this podcast, Jonathan. I like this, like, with you and with Thomas. Is Thomas here? I can't, I can't remember if Thomas was here. Is Thomas here? <laughs>